I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hi folks, this is Will Jevning. I want to bring up a couple of announcements before we get into the segment. Uh, The first thing, Tom, would you like to talk about Patreon just briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So if you appreciate the channel, you can support us by clicking the Patreon link in the description. And be sure to like and subscribe if you haven't already done so. All right, very good. And we can definitely use your support on the channel you know, by uh, becoming a subscriber. So I also wanted to bring up briefly my own books. I don't talk about these too often. They're on Amazon.com if anybody's interested. Uh, I have eight titles in print so far. Notes from the Field, In Search of the Unknown, uh, Haunted Valley, The Minnesota Iceman, Volumes 1 and 2 are Witness of the Unknown, Bigfoot Fieldwork 101, and Bigfoot Evidence. So if you're interested in those, you know, you can find them on Amazon. So that's it for our announcements, everyone. Uh, stand by for the segment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Mark is joining us today. Mark, how you doing? Uh, pretty good. How you guys doing? Excellent. Uh, Tom, you had a chance to talk with Mark on the phone, so would you like to start this? Absolutely. Mark, thanks for joining us today on Creek Devil. And sure. you and I chatted a, briefly about some of the encounters you've had. So I'll tell you what, why don't I hand the mic to you and you just start from the beginning and uh, tell us uh, tell us about your encounters. And, and is it okay if we say that you're in Ohio, but not sure. the location? Okay. Yeah, sure. I, I, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my name's Mark Mills and when I was a young fella back in the 70s, it's probably like everybody else, my dad took me to the drive-in to see The Legend of Boggy Creek. But that was years in the 70s, early, like early 74 something, I can't remember. But anyways, I lived uh, in Hawaii at that time, and then we moved back to the States. I kind of forgot all about Bigfoot because my dad was uh, ex-military, and we moved to Maryland. He was a diver, and uh, anyways, that's a different story, but we ended up moving down to uh, Louisiana for a little bit, and then that's where I grew up a lot, and then I ended up moving to Ohio in the early 90s, and I met some friends over in Columbus, Ohio at the time, and they said, hey, you want to go camping? And I'm like, sure, where are we going? He said, we're going down here to uh, southeast Ohio. And I'm like, okay, I'm game for that. So we go camping. It's in Wayne National Forest, southeast of Oak Hill in southeast Ohio. The closest town would be Hoadley off of Hoadley Road. 
and it was on a Memorial Day weekend in 98, me and my friend Greg, we went camping in Wayne National Forest. We arrived there Friday late night, probably it was uh, around midnight because we had to drive from Columbus, Ohio, so it was like a three-hour ride south from there, plus we had to stop and eat and fuel up and all that stuff. So the time we got to camp was pretty late. It was uneventful, so we kind of made camp, went to bed for the night. Well, the second morning, uh, we got up, and uh, we heard what sounded like a turkey out in the woods. So my friend Greg was uh, hollering, gobble, 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 and the turkey would gobble, gobble, gobble. And then it was just kind of uneventful. We had breakfast, went through, shot a few rounds of shotgun. I had a new shotgun I wanted to try out, so I was shooting it. And he had a new 45, and he was shooting it because we were, like, right on the edge of the federal land and private land. So we was on the private land. And it, and we were to give you a picture of what we were camping in, we were in this overhang. Um, I think back in the early days, it was an old steel, and they blew it up. And so it made like this overhang back in the hill. And it's a pretty deep overhang. It was probably 10 foot deep by 8 foot high by like 35 feet, kind of like a tire bent around in this wall of a hill. And it was probably up from the road. There's a gravel road down below about 200 yards. So we're kind of up on this hill and overhang. And all and like these two hills kind of merged to where this overhang was, and then it kind of met in like a little valley hill went down for drainage to kind of give you a picture. Well, anyways, uh, during the evening we started cooking dinner. That this is the Saturday night. We got there Friday night. This Saturday night and we're cooking steaks on an open fire, and after we ate and cleaned up from uh, the dinner, for fun and giggles, I had like I heard on. One of them websites, the howl that sound like an air raid siren, it kind of went, ah. And I did that for a couple of times for giggles while my friend was making sounds like a monkey going, <laughs> kind of like that. So we were just giggling around because we, we, we never camped out. This is my first time I ever camped in Ohio. And he's been camping there since he was a little kid. So this probably plays into this later. Um, so we did this for about 15 minutes, and then the time was about 7.15 p.m. And my friend proceeded to chop firewood for the night, um, for the, the night's campfire. And I went and sat down in a chair and turned on a portable boombox I brought along. And I sat up on this little picnic table they drug in there years ago. Um, so I turned on the radio, sitting there. And uh, my friend was done chopping wood about nine ten, And uh, I heard this tree limb being snapped over the radio. It was like, snap, like somebody just broke a branch for no reason. Just snapped because it was dead quiet. There was no wind blowing. And I turned the radio down and I said, Greg, did you hear that? And Greg's like, what? I said, you didn't hear that snap. And he said, no. So I turned the radio down, and uh, matter of fact, I just turned it off. And uh, about 9.15, um, 
we both were sitting in the chair and we heard this crash to our left. In order to come into the overhang, you had to come down this little steep hill. It was about an eight-foot drop into the overhang, just this little trail. And up on the hill, you couldn't see, but we heard what sounded like something either picked up a 300-pound rock or an end of a tree, a dead tree, picked up the end of it and just slammed it on the earth, just went boom, just like that. And that got both of our attentions because it actually shook the ground in the overhang. And that freaked me out. So I grabbed my shotgun. And my buddy grabbed this 45 and we load our guns. And uh, we're sitting there. Back in them days, we didn't have LED flashlights. So all you had was like two D-cell battery flashlights. And we start looking out in the woods high and low. And we did this for about 45 minutes trying to see what was out in the woods, if anything. Because we didn't know what that thump noise was. So after about an hour, um, we went to relax mode. He sat down and I put my shotgun back down and sitting in the chair and just sitting there. And So after a little while, my buddy passes out. He goes to sleep on a cot over here to my left and he starts snoring. And when he's snoring, I mean, I never heard nobody snore like this guy because I never camped with him. And it was loud. It was like, <laughs> real loud. Sound like a chainsaw loud. That's how loud it was loud. I was like, man, if that's a bear out there, he's going to attract the bear. That's what I was thinking. So he's sleeping over there. And uh, I would take my flashlights. He passes out probably 10 something can't remember exactly and i'm just sitting there so about every 15 20 minutes i pass my flashlight low on the ground and then up in the trees because i'm looking downhill and i'm in this overhang with my back to the wall so what was ever out there making the noise would have to come into the overhang to see me or look at me and uh that's what i figured so about 12 15 i was doing a pass from my left to right, and I would say about, mm, it's probably about 35, 40 feet out in the woods from me. I was doing this pass, and I saw these eyeballs, and they were big as golf balls, and they were probably six inches apart. It seemed like they were huge. I've never seen eyes like, they look like gorilla eyes from old TV sets, and but the thing was, they were blue, and really blue and i didn't really see no whites of the eyes they were just big blue eyes and when the flashlight hit its eyes it turned the head to the left real quick and that's when i freaked out and ran over and started shaking my buddy on the cot saying greg wake up greg there's something in the woods there's something in the woods so he sits up and he goes what what and i said there's something in the woods and he's like what and i said i don't know there's something in the woods well, he goes back to sleep because he was drinking beer pretty heavy that day. So now at this point, I decided he was bait because he's out and I got to defend myself against whatever's out in the woods because I'm terrified at this point. Because uh, now it's like a little after midnight. So now it gets quiet for a while. Um, 
I would take my flashlight and pass it out through the woods low and high about every 15 minutes. And also back then, um, we didn't have the little propane lanterns. We had that old white gas where you had to unscrew your lantern, put the fuel in there, then put the generator back in, screw it back in, and then pump it like 30 times to get I'm very familiar with those, Mark. <laughs> you can relight the light, right? So I'm sitting there. And guess what happens? The lantern goes out. And all I got is a little uh, D-cell flashlight. So I start panicking because now I don't have no light to see out in the woods because that was kind of like my light to see out in the woods. Because what I done was earlier in the evening, I took a roll of paper towels to block the light from the, the, the lantern so it wouldn't get my eyes while I'm sitting my back against the wall but I could see out because it was kind of like reflecting all the light out in the woods where I could see out in the woods so on that light, as well <laughs> yeah when the light went down I panicked I was like oh no man so you talk about somebody pit crew on a on a NASCAR doing a tire you ain't never seen nobody trying to fill a, a lantern up with white gas panicking because of what's going on out in the woods out in front of me so I get the fuel in there and I get it pumped up and I get it lit and I'm sitting there and I, I was like, whoo, thank God I got it lit again. And, and I sat back down, I started shaking a little bit and I'm sitting there in the chair. And the next thing I heard was, uh, the only way I can describe it was King Kong walking from my left, going down in the valley and going up to my right on the other side of the valley. And actually, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I was walking. And so, uh, and what I mean by walking like King Kong, it wasn't like a deer going, shh, 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 or a human going, shh, shh, shh. This was like King Kong. As each foot was hitting the ground, you could hear twig snap before you'd hear a thump. Then you hear, shh, thump. And you'd have to be there to really experience it. It was whatever it was was heavy and, and it and it, it was heavy and big, so all I can say. And so what I did was I had a throwaway camera and I would aim in that area where I was hearing this thing walking and I would snap a picture. Boom. And when I took the picture, this thing stopped dead, just boom, like I hit his night vision and he just stopped. He or she, I don't know, I couldn't tell you, but whatever it was, it just stopped in motion. I gone blinded it for a minute. So whatever it was, it took about 10 minutes, and then it would start walking again that same direction. Shh-thump. Shh-thump. And I'd take another picture, and it stopped. And this went up for like 45 minutes. So it's now over here on my right side somewhere. Where it is, I don't know. But it's on my right side up on the hill on the right side of me now. So now I'm trying to figure out what is this thing because I never run into a Bigfoot my whole entire life. I've camped since I was a little kid. I've been in swamps, Louisiana. I've been all over. I never heard nothing like this. And it's also, like I said, my buddy's passed out over there, so I got no help. Well, then it gets quiet for about 20 minutes or so. Um, I can't remember what time. It's now probably about 2 in the morning or something, I'm guessing. And the next thing it did was what freaked me out was it, it, it grabbed a tree. And it wasn't no little tree. I don't know if it was a tree or if it climbed up a tree 
and sat on a branch and put its arm around the trunk of the tree and grabbed the branch with its arm. But it started shaking this tree for like 30 minutes, just going, because to, to give you an idea how the evening was, there was no wind. It was deathly quiet. There was no sound in the forest at all. You hear crickets earlier. You heard a whippoorwill earlier. But other than that, it was deadly quiet. And we're under the canopy of the dark forest. And they were shaking that tree or branch for like a half hour. Then it stopped. And once it stopped, I panicked again. I ran over my friend Greg again. I started shaking. I was like, Greg, I'm scared. Wake up. And this is like 2.30 more. I'm like, wake up, Greg. He sits up. And he's like, uh, for about five minutes, boom, he passes back out. So now my heart's starting to beat. It's beating pretty hard. So then it got quiet again after it did that for like 30 minutes. Um, now it comes back the opposite way. It does the same thing again. Doing that stepping thing and I'm taking pictures again. And now it's back to my left side um, where it, it, it snapped the tree earlier and it did that big thump with either a rock or a fallen tree. And it's now off to my left. And it gets quiet again. Now it's about 3.30 in the morning. God, excuse me a second. This is part that's spooky. This is thing they make my name six times going... Mark rock rock, 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 and it was six times real deep guttural, and that freaked me out, man. That freaked me out, bad. And then I, I panicked and I got my shotgun and I started pacing back and forth. And I said, I got a shotgun. I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you with my shotgun. You understand? Whoever's out there, you're going to die. You can't be messing with people like this. And then it got quiet for a while. For about another half hour, excuse me, people. <laughs> then it got quiet for a while. And then the next thing it did, about after another 20 minutes, it tried to sniff me out from right on top of the overhang because how I know this was the fire was smoldering from that we, we, we cooked on earlier. I haven't fed the fire all night. It's just been smoldering smoke. And it must have... Uh, uh, leaned over the overhang to sniff me out when it did it just got a nose full of smoke just it went like and it went and the only way I can describe that to anybody is if you ever heard a horse go like that it had that kind of lung power it was huge lungs and it sneezed twice like that so after it did that, um, 
it got quiet for a little while, for about 10, 15 minutes. And then the next thing it did, it went <clears throat> real deep guttural grunts. It did three of them, like a gator. If you ever heard a gator, it's what it sounded like, deep. But it was grunts going, <clears throat> three of them. I couldn't even go as low. It, it kind of shake your chest a little bit. And I said, okay, I got a shotgun. I'm going to shoot you. Whoever's out there, you're going to die. I'm going to shoot you. When the sun comes up, you're done. Well, right about after that time, it was probably about, I'm going to say, five in the morning about this time. And this bolt of lightning. <laughs> and then it starts raining real big, heavy rain. I mean, heavy drops. Because it sounded like fire when all the raindrops were hitting the leaves of the woods. And now I lost all sense of spidey senses to tell me anything because you couldn't hear nothing. So now I'm panic mode again. So I'm just sitting there. And it rains. So now I can't hear nothing. I can't see nothing. It just rains for like 30 minutes. Then the rain stops. <laughs> Well, about this time, I'm tired. I've been up all night. I got to eat. So I put on a pot of coffee on my coal stove and start trying to cook something to eat. Meanwhile, Greg's over there sleeping. I'm trying to keep eye out in the woods, hoping that my uh, lantern makes it to the morning. So the morning comes, and my buddy Greg wakes up and goes, what was you shooting at last night? He wakes up about 8, I'm guessing, seven to eight somewhere in there and i said dude i wasn't shooting at nothing that was lightning i said dude don't you remember me trying to wake you up last night twice telling you i was scared and something's in the wood and he goes yeah and I, and I said well we had company he goes well i thought you was joking me man i go now why would a grown man shake you up and say scared and joke you does that make sense and he goes yeah i guess not but I said, well, we had company last night. And he goes, well, you got your wish. And I said, well, I didn't want to wish it that way, buddy. But uh, we had company, I'm pretty sure. And uh, Mark, when did it uh, eventually, was it, was it after the uh, thunderstorm that uh, you didn't have any more uh, sounds or, you know, you think the thing left or? I think it stood there a little while. And just standing up there um, and then left, us, you know, a little before daylight. I don't know how long before daylight because, I, like I said, I lost all sense of telling what was going on because the rain and by that time it made the ground wet. So when and if you know anything about woods, when you walk around on wet leaves, you can sneak around a lot better than dry, crunchy leaves. So yeah, 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 that. Dry leaf I could never tell now. when it left. That was the problem. I, I wish I knew, but I couldn't tell. I want to back up just briefly. Um, so this thing was actually, it sounded like it was uh, uh, calling your name or voicing your name. Yes, it did it six times. It said Mark Rock Rock, most definitely. And I wish I had a recorder back then, but I never had a recorder. There was nothing like that too much back then. And I wasn't looking for Bigfoot. I went to go camping and enjoy a weekend and shoot my gun. That's what it was all about. Wasn't looking for Bigfoot. It's to go camping. And probably it, I, I'm just sort of speculating here, but I'm assuming at some point um, 
you know, while you guys are camping, you know, before this encounter, your buddy, had he ever called you by your name? Uh, well, and, see, that's what people say. They go, well, how do you know your name? Well, see, you got to remember, we were out collecting firewood for tonight's fire. Like I said earlier, well, I don't know if I said it, but before the fire, we had to go out and collect some firewood. So while we're out there, he's like, hey, Mark, over here. And he'd say, hey, Mark, over here. So he kept calling me. Um, oh, okay. Then, okay. You know, like I said, he'd been going there since he was a kid. So if this thing's home is in that area, probably knows him is is... It may have even walked up to him while he slept there years ago. I don't know. He, him To him, it might not have been a threat. But see, during the day, I, when, when I used the restroom, I go different areas. And I think that was a threat to, he's like, hey, that dude's in my territory. Because he was watching us. Because you got to remember, like I said, when we woke up in the morning, my buddy was hollering for the turkey. And right after he did that, we were shooting our guns. So I think the gun shooting is 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 what I brought him in. The shooting of the guns because we shot him for like twenty minutes or something. I think that's what made the creature come see what we were doing. That's my guess because we were making noise as we're over here making the noise, shooting guns. Hey, what are these guys doing in my area? And I think he watched us the whole day because that's the only way I can figure he picked up my name. I said, it had been watching us. And that's when he was hollering my name that night. I said, oh, my Lord, he was watching us the whole day. That's what, that was what was the shock. Yeah. To pick up my name. That's, that's the shock. Yeah, no you're kidding. In the woods and, and, and it's just you and the guy and you're in the middle of nowhere and something starts mimicking your name. And the whole time it was mimicking my name saying rock, rock. The only thing going through my mind was either A, this thing's telling me his name's rock, rock, and he wants to communicate to me, or B, he's going to get a rock and he's going to rock Mark. That's the only thing going through my head. See what I'm saying? That was the only thoughts I had was either A, it's telling me his name's rock, rock, or B, he's going to rock me with the rock. That's what terrified me. Yeah. Because if he can mimic my name and he knows what a rock is, I mean, he might say, Mark, I'm going to rock you with the rock. See what I'm saying? That's what's going in my head. Yeah, no kidding. That's what I was thinking. Because, like I say, that early in the morning, something's out there mimicking your name, talking about rock, rock. I'm like, okay, this ain't good. So anyways, the next day... Uh, I ran out there, and I'm looking over the overhang. I don't see nothing. By this time, it's gone. Whatever was there is gone. So I went up on the hill to investigate, and I found where these toes had slid on the ground. But the problem with the ground there was it had lots of pebble in it and not a lot of mud, not a lot of dirt, lots of pebble. And I did manage to get a little picture of the toe you could see that where the toes, and they look like if I put two of my thumbs together, is about how fat each toe looked that slid on the ground. But other than that, you couldn't really make nothing out. Couldn't really get a cast nut. It was just too hard of a, and the picture didn't do justice of it. Right. Uh, I want to I want to pause for just a second um, and, and talk about why pictures don't do. Uh, 
when people take pictures of footprints and you know what you're talking about the toe, why it doesn't do it justice. And I want to explain that because I've experienced that. I've seen footprints and then you take a picture of it. And when you take a picture, it's it's very flat, it's very two-dimensional. And part of the reason is the lighting, but the, the real reason is because as humans, we have two eyes that gives us stereoscopic vision. The yeah. camera, you want to think of it, it has one eye and therefore it's very flat. So uh, I just want to kind of bring that up. It's, it's an interesting point. We hear it all the time. People say, hey, look, uh, here's a picture, but it doesn't do it justice because it doesn't do no justice. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, go ahead. So anyways, uh, I found the tree from the night before, and I got a picture of this tree. What it did was it took this tree that used to, uh, I'm going to say about eight foot high. And I'm going to say the diameter of this tree, the diameter was a good uh, probably four inches around at the top here. It grabbed this tree and it pulled this whole tree down. Must have been the snap when it pulled it down. Pulled this whole tree down to the ground. And when it also did that, about the eight foot mark, it twisted the top of the tree when it was pulling it down. So it's got a twist. Not only did it rip the tree down, but it's got a twist rip on it. And I got a picture of that. And on the end of another branch, it also did the same thing. It twisted off a branch, like, with its hand and did a twist snap and ripped it off. Um, that's what I discovered on the tree that I heard that snap. Um, as far as the one that the thump, I didn't ever see a boulder, but there was a couple trees laying around that it probably picked it up from the end and slammed it on the ground. It's either that or it jumped out of the tree and hit the ground. I just don't know. I didn't see it. I can't make proof what the sound was, but it was a well, good. Yeah, I'm going to comment on, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to keep interrupting, but I want to comment on that as oh. well. I have been in an area where these things are. And one time I heard that thump. It was like the best way I could describe it was if somebody had dropped a, uh, you know, a, a small block engine from about 40 feet up and it hit the uh, muddy ground. Exactly. Uh, just, just yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> a thump, just a bump. You're like, wow. It gets your attention. Yeah. Yeah, sure does. Okay. So anyways, uh, the rest of Saturday was uneventful because we weren't going to leave to the next day to finish our three-day weekend. But not only that, my friends say, so, you know, years ago, let's, well, first, let me back up. You said, let's hike up this trail up here on top of the hill and i said why is that he goes there's an old abandoned house up there i go okay so we hiked up there after we had breakfast and and before lunch we hiked up the the, the hill and there's there is an old house that's abandoned from the 50s and it does look like multiple creatures over the years you know not creatures as bigfoot per se but animals has lived through there and then he says you know years ago i was up here and this thing took off running like a bear straight through here. I said, oh, now you tell me the story, Greg. That's nice. And I said, what was it? And he said, I don't know, but it wasn't a bear. And he said, just, it ran on all fours through here years ago, down the hill, through the grass. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. So he didn't know what that was. 
So we proceeded from that house and went maybe an eighth of a mile. And to our right, with amazement to me, was like this doorway going into these woods to our right that's way up on top of this hill on this gas rideway. It's like been cut through there, so it's all open. And to the right was like this big, it looked, I put my arms out and I'm 5'8 and my arms, I don't know, maybe had another six foot going sideways and I couldn't even touch the sides. And the, the, the height was probably like seven foot going in and out of this woods. Whatever was going, it hadn't been going in and out of this woods because it was like a doorway, like a cut out doorway. And I was like, wow, I never seen nothing like this. And I didn't have a camera and I wish I did. I'd like to got a picture of it. But we went in them woods and I kid you not, we got in there. It's like 1230 in the afternoon and it's dark. And these woods had trees that had like the tops of them were like probably 40 foot high. And they were just tops. It didn't have branches. They were like these tops, like something you'd see out in West America kind of forest. And it had like these. uh, They're like little mini ferns is the only way I can describe them. They're like eight inches long, but they're all interwoven on the ground in here. I never seen nothing like this. And we're in there and we're walking around on these ferns. The whole ground was like that. I never seen none. And it was 1230 dark and I started getting EBGBs. I'm like, oh, Lord, I bet this is where they their stands in this woods right here right now. And I'm like, we got to go, Greg, because I'm getting the feeling in my spine. We're being watched. We got to go. So we got out of there. And I said, let's just go down the hill. Just for giggles, let's go down the hill. And we went down the hill, and lo and behold, guess where we come out? Right above the overhang, and I was shocked. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Hey, so Mark, I figured that I, might I, apologize. I apologize. I keep asking questions, but. Oh, no, keep asking them. That's how Okay. We... All right, so there was like a pathway through the woods, right? No, no, no. Well, no, it wasn't a pathway. If you imagine on top of a mountain or a hill, they make gas right-of-ways where they keep it mowed. Well, it's grass. There's no trees, and they kind of keep it. I guess every now and then if there's trees, I got to go cut them down through the gas right-of-ways. And it's just like grass that's probably, if you're walking up there, it's probably four and a half, five feet high grass. So you're actually walking through grass, you know what I mean? There's like, you see little game trails or a deer trail, but going off to the right, now through there, that area was trampled down coming out, like I said, that thing that looked like a doorway, a walkway, or, or you know, going in and out of the woods, the dark section on the right side. We were on the left side is where our uh, overhang was. Okay, yeah, no, that's, that's fine. I was just curious, it sounds like uh, stuff that, that we've seen before so yeah no continue on so anyways that evening his girlfriend see we're in ohio she was over in kentucky so she come up that night to spend the last night with us and she had a black lab or yeah she on the lab so she come spend the last night with us but her and greg were going to stay in the tent with the dog and i'm sleeping on i'm just sleeping on a uh an air mattress with the uh sleeping bag that's all i'm sleeping on under there so uh that evening we had dinner again she came well the dog was running around the woods that night where where whatever that creature was running around it was smelling it 
and it didn't like it because it would go down, it would hit a smell, and it turn around, and run back. And then it go down and hit another area, turn around, and come back. And the dog didn't want to venture out too far. So uh, a lot of people said, "Man, I'd have been out there the next day." And I'm like, "No, my, why am I gonna let something run me out of the woods? I, I'm camping. I'm here to relax. That was the whole point. Plus, to go home's a three and a half hour ride." I'm going to enjoy my vacation, you know, it's the end of this year, whatever it was, Memorial, yeah, May, whatever, yeah, May, beginning of the summer, I just, it was vacation, that's what it was, so people always go, I would have left, and I go, well, we stayed, so I've been up two days, I didn't sleep during the day the next day, so I made a pot of coffee, and I said, Greg, you got the watch, and he goes, what do you mean, I said, I'm going to lay down, it's 10 o'clock, here's a pot of coffee, if you have an inkling to go lay down with your girlfriend in the tent, um, you go ahead and go lay down, but make sure to wake me up because I'll be up. Just don't let me be sleeping because I've already been up two days. You know what I'm saying? I'm already full of adrenaline because what's going on out there. He just doesn't understand what's going on. So I lay down on the air mattress and, and he's sitting there. And just as I'm about ready to doze out, it's like 1030 it sounded like a freight train coming through the woods. I kid you not. Or it's really what it sounded like to give you a real feel for it. It sounded like something had a refrigerator on a dolly and was doing about 35 mile an hour through the woods nonstop. Didn't care what it was hitting. Just bulldozing right through the woods. And that was like 1030. So I jumped up out of the bed. He's sitting there freaking out. And I grab a flashlight. And I'm trying to look down in the valley and see what this thing is. And so that was at 1030. It gone ran down the hill. And what was frightening was it had to go up the other side of the hill. And this thing never slowed down. Never. A human couldn't even. You know, if you're running up a hill, you're going to slow down. I don't care how strong or bad you are as a human. Going uphill, you're going to slow down. And this thing never broke stride. Just 35 mile an hour, sound like, all the ways. And then it stopped way out here to the left. Um, that was 1030. And now my heart's going again. Now I'm starting to drink coffee. And Greg's like, that was a deer. I go, Greg, that was not a deer. A, Greg, uh, uh, a deer doesn't push trees through a forest like that. No. Well, I told you, we had company. I said, matter of fact, why don't you go get in the tent because he's starting to pass out. I said, go get in the tent with your girlfriend. I'll take care of it. Just go lay down. So he goes, lays down with his girlfriend and the dog. Um, that was 1030. Uh, I want to say it was uh, 12, midnight. Now I come back the other way doing the same thing. <sighs> Never slowed down going up the hill to the right this time. And then at one in the morning, it come from way up the hill, down the hill, just. And then it got quiet. And about that time, I went over to the fire and I just threw all the wood on it. And I just sat there and. Uh, nothing else happened the rest of the night. So I'm sitting there from like midnight contemplating like what is this thing doing and i sat there and thought and thought and then it dawned on me it smelt the dog 
And I think what it was doing was trying to lure the dog out. That was just my guess. Now, whether that's what it's thinking, I'm not sure. But that's the only reason I figure it run through the woods like that. Well, anyways, the next morning, uh, the sun comes up. And I had enough. I've been up three days. I had enough for this torture, whatever's going on. And I packed my stuff because his girlfriend was there. I got all my stuff, made my three trips to my vehicle, packed my stuff, and drove back to Columbus. And that was my very first introduction to what I believe was Bigfoot in Ohio of May of 98. That's an amazing encounter. Uh, That was was my first encounter. That's what got me started from that point on. Um, I got into Bigfoot research. And then since then, I probably had 35 encounters where they either threw sticks or rocks at me. Um, I got thermal image at uh, East Fort State Park. I ain't even even released this to the public or nothing. Um, But Ohio is up there. It's like number six in the nation for sightings. And then I got property in Adams County where uh, these other two fellas I used to to associate with we're just called mike and mike um got some pretty good vocals and they've been going around the country doing uh sharing their vocals they got at uh conferences and uh and then there's another guy i know up north of columbus he was just on your show not long ago i've uh, met on facebook that had his camper rock to death uh I'm trying to think of his name oh that's gary yeah, he was in a, his little, yeah, he's a go prospect guy. And yeah, he got terrorized by them things, I guess, pretty bad. Well, how far was, you know, do you know where Jerry's encounter took place and roughly what was the distance to where your encounter was? Oh, shoot. He's way up uh, in central Ohio and I'm in, uh, mine was in southeast Ohio. Oh, okay. Good distance. See, to give you an idea about Ohio, when you're in western Ohio, it's pretty much corn flatland, and you got a little bit of rolling little, I don't know what you call them, little hills. But the further east you go in Ohio, especially towards the Ohio River, you start getting into the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. So that's where most Ohio stuff is, is in the eastern half of the state. Because that area was old strip coal mines um, that some of it's been reclaimed, some's not. Like uh, there's a Coshocton over there, and Coshocton is a lot of wild land and a lot of Bigfoot reports. Uh, it's out there near East Fork State Park, which has a lot of sightings. I can take people back there. I don't want to tell you what loop it is, but there's a loop in there that bigfoot's in there all the time but the problem is since monster quest come out and finding bigfoot come out people have founded them at salt fork state park so now they don't do what they used to do naturally they used to communicate and and and, uh you'd be able to get them do wood knocks and stuff but now they do different things they just it's changed them out there even what um have you had any other in uh, significant encounters after this uh this first one that you you had yes uh 
me and the wife went camping with another couple out at uh, Salt Fork State Park in October. This has been probably eight years ago, maybe. Um, About eight years ago, I'd say. We went to Salt Fork with a couple other couples. And we were staying at the cabin. They got cabins out there along the lakes. And they have the Bigfoot Conference out there every year at uh, Salt Fork State Park. They have the Ohio Bigfoot Conference out there every year. But we were out there in October. We stayed at a cabin. And this was after the season because when October, uh, after uh, Labor Day weekend, they shut the, you know everything down. And down on the lake is this old stone house made from 1900 out of sandstone. And the walls are made out of like, uh, I'm going to say like six or eight foot long by maybe eight inches wide. uh, Sandstone blocks is a house made out of sandstone blocks pretty well from way back then. And we were going to walk down to uh, look at this house because it's after season but we were all just getting out to do a walk so to give you an idea how to get to this sandstone house you're up on this hill at the parking lot and you got to come down this gravel road that dog legs um you go right and then a dog's leg to the left right down into the to the, the the house down there and it's a good uh shoot uh I don't know. I'm not good at distance, but maybe a uh, hundred yards to where it dog legs and maybe another 150 yards to down to the left. And you're going downhill the whole time. And uh, me and my wife were out ahead of these other couples because they're elderly. They're like 20 years older than us. So, you know, they're slower. So me and hers just heading down the hill and I got my video camera in my hand. And because we were going to go down and, and shoot a little video of the sandstone house. Well, as we come around the dogleg curb, the other folks are behind us away. And down there in front of this sandstone house, they got this wall um, with sandstone block on top. Because then you go down from it to the shore of the lake. Well, by this, the, the corner of the sandstone wall, was like this ornamental grass bush. And I would say it was probably six foot high and maybe four foot wide, just an old ornamental grass bush. And when me and wife, my wife come around the dog leg, this thing was like crouched over looking behind the the grass, the ornamental grass looking back on the other side of the sandstone house. It was like crouched down watching. And we're like, and about the time we seen him, there was a duffel bag on the, the wall, like four feet away from this thing. And it hurt. It must have heard the gravel get kicked because it looked up at us and it stood up. And this thing was like four feet tall. And he was slender. Um, he's all black. And all I ever got to saw, he looked at us, kind of, we looked at it, and then it just jetted. It just ran, like, I'm going to say 25 mile an hour easily, just took off. And by that time, I was, the wife's like, what is that? And I'm trying to figure out what it is, because it's got no clothes. It's just all black, shiny black. And it just 
shot off that fast. And by the time I was seen by a video camera, it was already gone. There was no, there was no option. It was gone that quick. And my wife's just sitting there in disbelief. And like I said, the other people couldn't see because they still were behind us. And, uh, and when it shot off by us, the only way I can describe the face, people say what it looked like. And I say in the face, the only way I can describe it, it had part eight, part chimpanzee, and part human in the face. It was like all rolled in one. And all you could see was from its nose on the side of the face. It never looked at its head on, dead on, so I couldn't really tell you exactly what it really, really looked like because it all happened so fast. And so I quickly ran down the road to try to get some video on this thing, but it was already gone. Um, and what it looked like it was, it ran, it didn't go down the trail, but off it, it ran probably about 30 yards, and off to the right was a little valley, went back up a hill, and I think that's the way it went. This mom probably was up on the hill watching or something, because it was a, a hill up here to our right. And that's probably where it ran back up. And what was going on was on the other side of this, this sandstone house was this photographer lady was taking pictures of these three young women that, I don't know, it looked like they were doing school pictures maybe. And whatever was in that duffel bag, I'm guessing that little creature um, was attracted to it. And it was curious. And it just happened so fast. And... And that was wild, and it took off. And that was uh, my wife's first encounter. That was my second encounter seeing one. Uh, my what, third... what did uh, just out of curiosity? What did your wife? Uh, did you guys talk about it afterwards? And what what were her thoughts? Well, she knew I, I was into Bigfoot, but she kind of was just shocked us seeing it. You know, when you see these things for the first time, your brain cannot register because it. It's like searching. It's like your your brain's like a computer searching for a picture to match it, and there's nothing there. And when you see it, you're like, "Oh my God, what is that?" It's just, and it's happening so fast. You know what I'm saying? And that was her first encounter, and and she just couldn't believe it. And the other, like I said, the other couples they didn't get to see it, but. That was at Salt Fork. That place has got many encounters out there. Um, our, my third encounter was uh, back at that same place I had my first encounter. Um, I went back there. That was in May I camped, and I went back September. Not, well, no, let me back up. The baby one was my third encounter. I had a second encounter back at that same uh, overhang in September. But that encounter, the only thing I can tell you about that one was I can't sleep there at night. So about every 15, 20 minutes, I always make a pass through the woods there because I'm just up. I might as well be doing something. And uh, I think it was one in the morning I was doing a pass and boom, there was something standing there with his back to me. And the way I'm going to describe this thing was it was seven foot tall. It had four foot wide shoulders. Each arm 
was big as one of my legs going down his side. I couldn't see how far down it went because of the, the undergrowth was probably three and a half, four foot high where it was. So he couldn't see like past the butt cheeks. It had his back to me. And the color of the fur on that one was like a, 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 a cocker spaniel blonde. It was a blonde color. It's the first time I ever heard or seen anybody talk about blonde because I saw it. It was a blonde, like cocker spaniel blonde all over. And the, the, the hair or fur, I don't know what you want to call it, looked like three inches. But the one I saw, when I saw this one, I'm looking at it from downhill, so I couldn't see a cone on the head like people always say a cone. It was more humanoided round. But the, the head was like stuck just like you hear on the neck, muscular neck. Um, and the body tapered down on this one to the waist. It tapered down to the waist. Uh, and I kept the flashlight on it because I wanted to see the face. I wanted to see this one bad. And what it did next freaked me out was it just squatted down in a squat position like, okay, I'm busted by the flashlight. So about that time, I had to run 15 feet away to get my shotgun and run back in the woods. And when I did, it was gone that quick. I never heard it take off. I didn't see it, didn't hear it, nothing. It was gone. Um, and that was uh, one I saw. And, and then the wife had her second encounter in Adams County at my uh, camp. I got a camp on top of a mountain ridge down there overlooking the Ohio River. And that place down there is full of Bigfoots. Um, one night we got there, 1030 at night, and I'm going over to turn our water on on one part of the property. And she's on the porch on the cabin looking over on the other part of the property. There's like a shooting range down the hill. And I guess this creature run across. Well, first the dog started ground. We had over a little dog and he's. And I guess a creature about six foot tall run across the shooting range. And she saw it and she panicked and started calling me. And, uh, and I said, what is it, honey? And she said, I told you, come over here. And I said, well, what was it? And she goes. I think a Bigfoot just run across the hill over here. And I said, probably did, you know, <laughs> we are in the boonies out here. Um, so that was like her second encounter. Um, but other than that, um, I probably had 30 encounters where they throw sticks and rocks at me when I'm out doing research. Um, what was the follow-up with, uh, you know when your wife saw something and you said yeah it probably was what what did you guys do after that um well i went over there and tried to look for tracks that's what i did i went and like i said again this the ground down by the ohio river has lots of rocks in it so and it's hard to push in the ground there where other words if you go inland like to salt fork state park they still got a little bit of, uh, of gravel and their dirt over there too but over there is more you can get more impressions in certain like on trails where down here it's full of like lots of leaves, lots of pebbles under the, the, the dirt. It's real. It's harder to get any kind of like footprints or just the ground just ain't right here for it. Like some people, you know, they have different soils. This the grounds I deal with are more rockier than, than you can get impressions. Um, you can see stuff, but they're just, 
not definite. But I went and looked over there. Um, I did see maybe one where one footprint may have hit, but it was nothing definite. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing you could get a cast, nothing definite. Um, but one day, me and Mike... Um, this one Mike searcher guy, researcher guy, we went to Salt Fork and uh, one night what we did was we took an ear of corn and there's this mud, it, it like been raining for a few days. So we took this ear of corn and we put it out in the middle of this area, which was real squishy, muddy. And we took bacon grease because it's over here. They like bacon grease and hot dogs is what I hear. So we took bacon grease and poured it over the ear of corn. So the grease went on top of the corn and all over the water. And uh, then we took another ear and placed it 10 foot away just on the ground. Well, something picked the one up on the ground and ate like half of it and put it back down. And the other ear that we put in the water, you could see where a finger went through the actual grease and grabbed that corn. And that ear was gone. And not only that, but we actually got a footprint in that water. I got a picture of that where uh, we actually got the footprint because it still had like, uh, I don't know if you know, but like if you step in the mud with your foot, it'll leave clouds. If it's fresh, it'll leave like clouds rolling. So that's kind of like what it had in, in the water, in the print. So you could see the footprint in the clear water. But like the muddy water that was stirred up in the footprint, which made it help to make the definition, you know what I'm saying, where you could see it. Oh, yeah, sure. And it was probably in that footprint we saw, I'm guessing it was probably about 10 inches long, probably about four inches at the, the foot, maybe two or three at the heel. And it was kind of flat footed, but um, that was pretty neat. Um, on another occasion with me and Mike, uh, this Mike researcher, um, we, we went down this horse trail on this same loop I always tell you about. It's a hot loop, but I don't tell people where to go because I don't want them back there. I don't want nobody to get hurt and say, I said go back there. You know what I'm saying? So I just don't tell people nothing. I keep it all myself. But anyways, we went back on this loop, uh, this trail. We went back in there probably about, it's probably about quarter mile. And what we did was we brought chairs and we put them facing each other and we took a lantern. This time we had the propane lantern and we took it up the trail about 12 feet going further away from the parking lot we come from. And we took aluminum foil and put around the light where it would just reflect up the trail from us. So we would see if anything's coming from the trail towards us from behind Mike. And Mike's watching behind me to the way we came from the parking lot. And I guess we went in there about 930 at night. We're just sitting there being quiet, just listening to the night sounds. And and back then I had a, a, a rechargeable thousand candle or a million candle power chargeable searchlight that you put like on a boat or something. So you could see, but it's rechargeable. You'd get about 20 minutes charge. And we had that with us. Well, about midnight, we decided we're going to leave because we, we weren't hearing nothing. It was just the nor- the normal noises of the, the 
crickets and the frogs and so we were getting ready to leave and we grabbed our stuff and when i picked up the lantern you talk about king kong this one was really big because when it walked it was shaking the earth it'd be like you know what i mean something heavy like heavy and so mike was panicking he's he was panicked like calm down dude don't run just calm down and this thing was coming right at us and he's like turn off the lantern turn i was like why you want to see the thing don't you turn off the lantern he was panicking and i'm like why do i want to turn off the light well anyways i turn off the lantern because he's panicking and so we grabbed all of our stuff our chairs and and we start headed back to the parking lot. Well, once I turned off the lantern, then the thing started gaining speed, started, you know, it's, it's picking up speed. And now I'm panicking because he's panicking. So I take my million candle flashlight and I turn on and put over my right shoulder and just start waving it all over behind my shoulders. We're, now we're running because this thing's picking up its pace. And I guess I must have hit it in the in the eyes just right because it stopped all of a sudden. And we just kept going. So I must have gotten eyes because this all happened quick. And we got out of there. And that was just another encounter. That's just one encounter from one night. I can just go on and on encounters. but Well, what I'm going to do, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Mark, I think we're going to have, uh, we're going to get you back on for a follow-up. We're just about out of time. Yeah. But I got to tell you, this has really been a uh, really good interview. I really enjoyed hearing, especially that first story. I don't know what I would do if the thing started calling my name out. I think that would just be, it's provocative and, um, you know, it's, it's very eerie. So that 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 would probably put a lot of people over the edge. Yeah, it it really would. So, listen, I think we're going to get you back on at some point. And uh, and by all means, you know how to get a hold of us. So stay in touch and we'll do likewise. Yeah, Mark, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Yeah, like I said, I got many stories I can just sit here one night and tell you many encounters or just just going out and doing research just i'm still here and i'm not dead but i may have been lucky not run into that mean one you know like people say they're they're like people have different personalities and i've experienced a lot of it it's just ohio they're here in ohio that's there's no doubt about it i can take you many places you want to come over and (laughs) heck they're right there at my mountain in my cabin i just I don't mess with them there. I just keep the peace. I don't, and like these dumb people gifting, like Jerry, I think Jerry learned a lesson not to gift because I think that's what caused his problem. Sure it was. Because you always hear, don't gift them. Well, that's what I tell people if they ask me. I say, man, that, when I see people gifting or they're on YouTube or Facebook, I'm like, man, they don't know what they're doing there, bud. That's, that's right. Open. That's right. Listen, Mark, thank you. In Bigfoot history, near Stevenson, Washington, March 1969, after seeing the track cast by Sheriff Ed McLarney and Marvin Morash, according to the special Bigfoot edition of the Skamania County Pioneer, headed into the backcountry in McLarney's four-wheel drive rig. 
They went as far as the snow would permit, then took off into the mountains. Seven miles from any habitation, they discovered big footprints emerging out of a canyon, crossing a snow-covered forest trail, proceeding through a logged-over area, clear-cut, headed towards the lava beds. There were no snowmobile tracks, no ski tracks, no snowshoe tracks, no people tracks of any kind. A return convinced that something out of the ordinary had certainly been there. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Um, I guess we're going to dive into questions right away here, so I'm not sure which one of you guys wants to start first, but uh, let's go ahead and begin this segment. All right, I'll jump in. I've got one. This is from our friend Fred in Okinawa, and Fred's got a question. Hey, guys, thanks for the uh, meeting, and uh, he says, quick question about possible DNA. I've heard Will tell one story of DNA coming back as unknown primate. I believe this is when the Sasquatch chased a kid on a bike, and that was the TW story, grabbed the bike, <clears throat> excuse me, left blood on it. And are there other documented examples? <clears throat> and can we see the source material? And I got to say real quick, before you answer that question, that was a favorite um, I guess part of that story, the whole part of the story was great, but um, anyway, well, you know the story with TW, and uh, anyway, what's uh, what's the answer on that? Well, for listeners who haven't heard that, I'll, I'll just go over it quickly. Um, TW is a police officer friend of ours in the southwest, and uh, and this was actually southern New Mexico. Um, what happened was uh, this kid, 15-year-old kid, was at a friend's house a little bit too late, past dark. Um, and I can't remember what time. I, I want to say around, you know, probably 9, 10 p.m. time frame. So he rode his bike. And I've been to the location, so I, I know what the area looks like. It's it's pretty rural there. Uh, trees and things like that. A lot of pecan trees, big orchards there. And, um, and there's, you know, plenty of water. There's plenty of stuff for these creatures. So... It's not an area you'd think of as deserty. It's it's actually fairly lush there. But uh, anyway, this kid was riding his bike home, and in that part of the county there, uh, they don't have a ton of money, so they only have street lights where there's like danger points, you know, curves and things like that. So um, he felt like he was being followed. So at the first stop, uh, um, roadside overhead light, he stopped. And he turned around to look, and here was this massive creature behind him on all fours. And he said, on all fours, it was around six feet high, so it was huge. Uh, obviously, he was, you know, terrified, and he started to take off on his bike, and the creature simply reached out and grabbed the bike. The kid goes over the handlebars, and he takes off running. He runs for home, you know. Um, gets home terrified, you know. Parents didn't really believe him, so he said, hey, call the cops. You know, we'll, we'll go back there and look. So they did. They called the sheriff's department deputy comes out and the deputy was a friend of tw so that's how he learned about what happened so um you know they go back to the location and the kid says you know and first the deputy's like well you know he didn't really believe me there he says hey look i'll take you back there and show you so he did and they drove back to the location and the kid's bike was you know the frame was bent pretty drastically apparently and and thrown up into a tree so um 
he was able to retrieve the bicycle and there was some blood on it apparently where the creature grabbed part of it and cut its its hand so you know following procedure uh and and, you know he wanted to know if it was somebody that was maybe in their system you know in in the police system so he you know started the chain of custody collected the blood and sent it into their regional lab to have the you know to see if it was somebody in their system and it was supposed to only be an inexpensive the test just a quick test to see if you know it was somebody that come up on their radar about a year goes by no word and then the deputy gets called into the sheriff's office and the sheriff is you know beside himself because here's this test that's you know i, I think around forty thousand dollars and he wants to know why they why they had to pay this kind of money for this test and, and the deputy's shocked he says no it was only supposed to be a you know like a twenty dollar test or whatever it was you know very very inexpensive and the results were unknown primate <clears throat> so dna wise uh because and i i spoke when i wrote notes from the field years ago uh with a dna expert at a university in canada and and he explained and i, and I put it in the book you know the interview how he explained about dna and what you could tell from it and you know if somebody brought some hair sample in and largely it's because you know these things aren't cataloged in, in any sort of bank dna bank um you know they all they can do is run a uh, comparison of the nearest uh similar creatures so uh that's what they did and it just came back unknown primate now, as far as availability i don't know tw's been trying to get a copy of the report so I, i'm not sure how that's going i haven't talked to him about it recently but uh you know I, I i don't know i mean if there's anything out there um you know and i know people cite some of these you know people in in the bigfoot communities having done all these tests and all these result, results i don't really believe that because of what this expert in canada told me if it's not in the dna system you know in other words you have to have a known sample to compare things by and and there is no known sample in the dna banks you know for these creatures you know will i actually have two questions or follow-up questions to that number one did the uh the expert that you talked to did he ever say that dna would be more advanced at some point to uh you, you know at, at some point we, we we might not be able to say unknown primate. It'll, uh, if there's nothing in the database, I understand that. But if there are more than one DNA samples, would it possible be possible to have DNA that's more advanced at some point? Well, probably, but you still have to know what you're comparing something to. I mean, it's DNA is not a magic bullet for humans. We get a lot because we've studied ourselves the most. That's the way it was explained to me, and and it really depends on other animal species what has been put into you know what's been cataloged and studied so it's not it's not the magic bullet most people think it is based on television yeah and i guess that kind of goes back to um tom's original question which is that uh yeah we, we, if if there are other dna samples out there then you may might be able to make a distinction i guess between these unknown primates and how they compare to each other, how these DNA samples compare to each other. I suppose you could, but then you'd have a bunch of unknowns. So really, it's kind of a circular argument in a way. Yeah, I guess it has to be officially discovered, I guess, to to really define it as a Sasquatch. Right. Um, but the second question I had about that story is, 
He said it was six feet tall on all fours. Yeah. How tall would it be if it was standing up? Oh, geez. Eight, nine feet high, maybe more. We don't know the footprint size, so we can't really calculate height, but that's a pretty big creature. Yeah, so there were no, uh, they didn't get any footprints? No, this was, it was on a, um, like I said, I've been there. It's a pretty rural place. I've taken pictures of the area. Um, there, that part of New Mexico, there were a lot of pecan orchards and the trees are around, Tito, we told me around 80 years old. So they're, they're pretty mature trees. And, um, they didn't, and now he and the deputy went back there and did have some experiences after that with the creatures, you know, they saw eye shine and they had an alpha that roared right behind their, their police cruiser. So, um, that was pretty unnerving. I was actually texting him at the time this was unfolding. So, um, you know, they didn't stick around and, and the ground really isn't, uh, it's not the kind that would, you know, make good footprints. You'd probably get some impressions, but it's pretty hard packed. And it was right next to the road, and and it's a two-lane road, you know, not a whole lot of traffic people out there because it's, you know, all farmland. But um, I, I suppose had they, you know, been in a different set of circumstances, they might have actually, you know, been able to get away from the road and out farther where, you know, they saw the sets of eyes. And again, it's private property, so they would have had to have gotten permission to go out there and, and all that. But they didn't, you know, they were pretty unnerved by the situation, so they didn't collect anything. Yeah, I was going to say, because it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but most footprints that people get are probably from maybe the Pacific Northwest, which probably doesn't have as dry as a climate than, than that area. Well, it really depends, again, on circumstance, because we've got a situation currently going in Arizona, and it's in a river um, that has water in it, catfish. You know, not a fast-moving river. It's, you know, I've got pictures from my, my guy there, and it's... You know, it looks fairly calm, the water, but it's it's present. You know, there is water there. There's catfish in abundance there. And, um, you know, in the pictures, you can see where it's it's dried out, you know, but it's wet underneath, maybe an inch or so underneath the crusty top and you know, where it's cracked and everything. And and even the juveniles are, juveniles are leaving really good, uh, I mean, excellent footprints. I've got, you know, tons of pictures of them from my guy there. And... Um, uh, so, I mean, it just depends on the circumstances, the soil and, and moisture and all that stuff. Well, I want to jump in for a second on on the TW situation in that pecan orchard. And you sent me pictures of that. And kind of the direction, the default that my mind usually goes to when I think of a Bigfoot habitat is not just rural, but you know, wilderness areas, right? Places where people only go there if they're camping or hiking. But that area is actually, you know, it's farmland. And again, this kind of, the first experience that you had at, uh, you know, at your house when you were a kid or teenager, again, you weren't living in the middle of the wilderness. You're, You're in a kind of a rural um, suburban area or yeah, more of a rural farmland. So again, it just kind of goes to these things are in places that we may not necessarily think of right off the bat as this is where they're going to be. So they, it's a long-winded way of saying they could be in your backyard if your backyard's in the right place. 
Yeah, I guess I guess if you look at you know places uh, like my where I grew up, you know when you, you look at urban areas, and and we were quite a ways away from urban areas. Then there's the suburbs that are you know still pretty heavily populated with people. They just you don't have all the the businesses you know in, in the suburbs, and where we lived was out beyond that. You know, very rural areas where there was a lot of a lot of stands of forest uh, intermixed with farms. And there weren't a lot of farms there. There were, you know, maybe, geez, I don't know, um, you know, a dozen or so in that general area. So we were pretty spread out. So, I mean, there was a lot of space in between human habitations, you know, livestock, horses, all kinds of things like that out there and wildlife. So uh, then you get out beyond the areas like where I lived and then you got true wilderness. So where I lived is kind of borderline in this area where TW had these experiences um, because that region is a different type than where I lived. Uh, but it would be comparable, you know, because west of there is the Rio Grande River, which, you know, when it has water in it, it's fairly large. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of resources for the creatures in that area. Yeah, and, and I, I really... You know, again, going back to T.W., that other part of the story where he was there with the, you know, there's two cruisers and they're looking out in the field and they saw the eye shine. Um, again, this was, it was just some farmland out there. So these things are, I guess, for lack of a better word, kind of getting used to, I guess, sneaking around, uh, you know, having good cover at nighttime, but going around and getting food from these uh you know, from these farm areas. Well, there was they were just in one cruiser. The two of them were in, a, in, the, in the sheriff's cruiser. Um, and, you know, looking at the place on the ground, you know, the, the, um, the habitation places where people are are pretty far apart there because these be, pecan orchards are pretty large, right? So once you get away from the road a little bit, they got a lot of cover. I mean, because the trees are big, um you know, so they they could disappear pretty quickly, and nobody would ever see them out there, you know, especially at night. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and there was plenty of water. There was, you know, the pecans themselves, great food source. Um, you know, there's there's lots of wildlife in that area, lots of deer, lots of other animals. So, uh, yeah, they, they have lots to support them, uh, you know, being in a place like that. Okay, so we got a question here from Ron. And this has come up before, but I think it's a good one to touch on. This is the state highway traffic cameras. He says, hey, fellows, I've learned much from listening to your show. So, Ron, thank you. A uh, lot like the, the, the good comments. He wants to know, what's our opinion of the state, state highway traffic cameras that have captured pictures of Sasquatch? And I think he's referring to the one he says here. Uh, a few years ago, the traffic state cameras, the traffic cameras caught what looked like a potential sighting of a group of Bigfoot and what's any comments on that you know the validity legitimacy of it or maybe it was real well you know on the surface things like that look legitimate but here's here's the thing to consider um, and, and I, I didn't really think about it I mean I wasn't really too deep into looking at that until somebody contacted me and said hey you know the problem with this Something like this is the fact that those cameras are pointed at the highways. They're not pointed out in the fields and things, 
So it's prob that's probably a hoax because that they'd be pointed at the highways. That's what those cameras functions are. Yeah, exactly. And there was that one picture. I think it came out a couple of years ago, and it, it was supposedly a W dot, you know, Washington State Department of Transportation camera pointed again, like you said, up at a field. Why would they be pointed up there? There's no traffic up there. Exactly. <laughs> the cars yeah. are on the road. Right. Not yeah, they're climbing up the mountain. Yeah, they're traffic cameras. They're not pointed out away from the highways. That's the whole point. That's what their funding is for, is to, you know, be able to uh, keep tabs on what's going on on the highways. So I, I get yeah. it. I think they're. I think they're fake. I think they were doctored. Yeah, you know that's interesting because I read a report here where one of the toll, well, one of the I guess sightings occurred right by a toll booth but there were no pictures but it was just kind of interesting that the the guy mentioned it so i guess it could be a possibility that maybe like a like a toll booth could a camera could catch because they do have cameras i know that for a fact because i got a ticket before for, for that um, <laughs> yeah i mean it was actually sure it was a yeah it was taken and i won but um but yeah, they do have cameras. Sure. I mean, if, if the creatures are crossing the highway, then yeah, it's possible you'll get a, a picture that way. But these things, if they're, that's, that's your first clue. If they're pointed off in a field, it's probably a hoax. Brian, I mean, just a real quick comment. I've been in Florida before, but I was in South Florida and the driving habits down there were more like stop signs and red lights were sort of like suggestions not absolutes <laughs> yeah. yeah have you optional noticed that is it the same in orlando yeah optional traffic laws <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we'll just to kind of uh, change topics a little bit here um this isn't really so much a question well it is a question i guess but i don't really have uh, disney plus anymore after the second season of mandalorian I canceled it. I guess I'll get it back when Mandalorian season three comes out. But um, apparently there was a show this past week where they took the actor Jeff Goldblum mm -hmm. out to Bigfoot hunting. I'm not sure if you heard about that. Oh, no. But I guess, yeah, the question is, of course, so I guess he's probably a believer. I assume. I haven't seen the show. But, and, of course, Megan Fox is pretty vocal about her belief. But it just goes to show that these are only a couple people. So I guess my question is, do you think that there are more people out there in the entertainment industry or celebrities in general that maybe believe in it, but they don't want to come forward and say in that because they don't want their careers to be affected? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I would assume that, you know, an acting is probably, um, you know, depending on who the person is, you know, and, and, and in the industry, um, how often they get roles and things like that. So, you know, I'm sure they want to be careful about, you know, what they invest themselves into, you know, out of fear of, you know, possibly being cut out of certain roles because of that. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and on that note, has anybody of fame, and I'm not saying like as famous as Megan Fox or, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or anybody like that, but maybe somebody that's semi-famous, have they ever contacted you or have you ever interviewed someone like that where they kind of want to stay anonymous but at the same time they're believers um not really that at least that i know of um you know i do get emails sometimes from people that are you know sort of cryptic in there as far as who they are but uh, most often 
and especially the last few years, I get contacted by professional people, you know, lawyers and doctors and people like that. Um, so, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe people in the entertainment industry will, you know, those that have an interest will contact me, but right now it's, it's, uh, increasing in terms of professional people. Okay. And just out of curiosity, are there people, or is there a difference between the United States and Canada in that regard about people that want to stay anonymous or is there one country or not just us and Canada, but just other countries in general where they're more open about talking to it and they're less fearful about coming forward? Um, yeah, I think, I think Canadians and Australians are more open. You know, they, uh, <clears throat> Canadians are a little more accepting of the subject. And, and I think Australians are just very open people, you know, they're going to say what's on their mind and, you know, not be too concerned about what other people are thinking. <laughs> and I find that very refreshing actually. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Will, we've talked about this in the past that, it really doesn't matter what your um, social status is or your educational background. You get a lot of people who are, um, you know, you'd be, they'd be considered high up in the social ladder as well as the educational ladder. And they have an absolute, <clears throat> excuse me, fascination with this topic. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's necessarily their position, but. Um, you know, there's people from all walks of life, whether it's they have an interest or they've had an experience. And it's, and it's the ones most often that have had an experience. And it really throws a wrench in their worldview that have contacted me for decades and, you know, <clears throat> wanted answers. And I've helped quite a few people through these situations they've had to better understand, you know, how this fits into their worldview. So, uh, that's kind of the perspective on that, but you know, I'm you know totally open to anybody who's um, you know if they're interested or they have questions or whatever, you know, get a hold of me. I'll do my best to answer your questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, and and I think it just kind of underscores the fact that it's a topic that once you get solid information, you know, you get away from a lot of the. Um, you know, the kooks and stuff out there, there really is data that supports, solid data that supports the existence of these creatures. And I think it, a lot of people, regardless of their background, uh, can recognize that. I did want to mention something, too. I forgot at the beginning of the segment that um, I'm working on a current project. I'm not going to say what it is just yet, but I'm trying to gather all the questions possible from people. So if you've got questions, uh, it doesn't matter what it is about, you know, the creatures or the subject, you know, send them to me at, uh, you know, my email, williamjevening at yahoo.com or wjevening at gmail.com. And um, I, I've got quite a few already, but any and all questions are welcome. So I really appreciate everybody listening to if they would send me their questions. Okay. So, so Will, uh, this kind of goes back to my previous question about what percentage of celebrities might believe in it or whatever, but this kind of relates to the common person. Now, I'm not saying at all that Reddit is a scientific source at all, but it's kind of interesting because I was looking at some of the, if you just do a search on Reddit and Bigfoot, there are polls out 
and some of them show that the people that believe in it are about one in four now, which I think is a lot different than it probably was a few, like maybe 10, 15 years ago. So it just goes to show that more and more people are becoming open to the subject, I think. There's, uh, yeah, there's a lot more saturation out there, whether it's online or books or movies or whatever about the topic. So I think, um, I think that, you know, helps make it more acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the documentaries that are out there from legitimate sources like the history channel, uh, uh, national geographic and A and E and sources like that make it a lot more, I guess, bring a lot more awareness about the subject and the seriousness of it. And it's not just joking, you know? Yeah. The history channel in particular does a great job. I, I did a, you know, of course, America's Book of Secrets with them. And um, they're very professional, you know, in what they do. Very good organization, I think. But also YouTube and, and other outlets like that. Well, when you were, um, you're, I think you've talked about this in the past, when you were recorded with the America's Book of Secrets, or, or rather filmed with them, Um what was the general consensus that you got of the the film directors, their understanding of the topic and their genuine interest in the topic beyond just you know putting on a you know a show of interest to the public? It was kind of an education for them. <laughs> I uh, uh, the producer uh, of the show at that time, you know, we had we had some conversations and she was really kind of shocked. Uh, then they didn't know. You know, they really, you know, you know I'm sure the the, uh, the network had an interest or, you know, History Channel had an interest in doing the show. Obviously, they're looking for different topics. Um, but some of these things, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're handed, you know, this project and, and then they have to go out and find out who um, knows what they're talking about. And, and when I spoke with the, uh, the producer, not the director, the producer, uh, she really didn't know <clears throat> much about the topic. So... We talked about the topic and some of the different people that they were thinking about approaching, and she was really glad that we spoke because <clears throat> they had no clue and they wanted to do a really good, um, not some cheesy, crazy show. They wanted a, a good, solid production and, um, you know, help guide her through, uh, navigate through the kind of the minefield that is, that's the subject of Bigfoot, and, and it turned out to be a pretty good episode. Well, along those lines, how many interviews like that have you done where the person interviewing you either didn't believe in it or was skeptical and by the end of it came out a believer, like you convinced them? Well, I don't know exactly how many. There have been a few over the years. Uh, most often, the people I deal with are people that have just, you know, this this happened to them. You know, they ran into one of these things or more of them, and it's just a total shock for them. So I've that's been the majority of people I've dealt with as far as, you know, interviewing people. And I think um, Joe Rogan was probably one of the, the more interesting ones. You know, we, we, we talked on camera for a couple hours. And this has been, oh, I think 2013. I, I think that's when it was. But, um, and they didn't use my segment because the, the show, the sci-fi put together at that time, um, the people in charge put kind of the crackpots on the show and I was thankful on my segment didn't go on there, but, but, uh, Joe Rogan and I, you know, we talked and, and then the, uh, uh, producer emailed me and said that he liked me and in terms of the questions and answers that we did. Uh, 
which were quite a few. He had a lot of questions. And if you've ever watched Joe Rogan <laughs> interview somebody, um, the guy is just a machine when it comes to, you know, questions and, and doing that sort of interviewing. But uh, I was able to answer, I think, most of his questions. And, of course, that was a time when I had, I had less answers than I have today. But, uh, yeah, he was a tough one. But he had great questions. I'm not sure if I answered your question or not. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you did. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it would be great if, if we can get you on uh, his, his podcast sometime. He was, he was an interesting guy. I think he was having trouble, like most people do, approaching this subject and, and just, you know, trying to navigate all the nonsense that's out there. And, and I think, you know, he was kind of left today with, you know, probably being more on the side of not thinking the creatures are real. I think he's, like a lot of people, are waiting to have some real proof to convince him. And that's where the majority of people really are. Uh, they're kind of on the fence. They're willing to entertain it. But, you know, they're not vesting themselves in one side or the other because, you know, there really isn't a lot of good stuff that comes from either of those sides. You know what I mean? Pro or con. Yeah, you know, but he, he does have an open mind. I mean, I've, I've seen a couple of his podcasts with uh, Bob Lazar Oh yeah, and you're right. Skeptical. He asked tough questions, but very, very good interviewer though. And uh, yeah, I mean, he can talk for hours, do interviews for hours, and they don't lose steam at all. No, it's just it, conversation. And I think guys like you know Joe Rogan are great because that's the kind of questions that need to be asked, tough ones, because it makes it makes us come up with better answers. Is what it does. Yeah, absolutely. So we got a question here from, I think this one actually comes from Australia and it's about Australia, but actually the world in general and this topic, I understand why possibly why Bigfoot is sort of, um, I don't know if it's suppressed, but it's, you know, what we're just now talking about, the topic is uh, treated with a lot of skepticism in the U.S., but what about other areas like China, Russia, uh, certainly, you know, countries with the Himalayas running through them and also Australia, which we've done quite a bit recently. Um, any idea why those countries wouldn't have somebody would have just come forth and said, hey, we've got them here. They are. Well, and I, I think it depends on those you know, places. I'll take it from there. Yeah, I think it depends on those places. Do they have people? Uh, that are out doing that kind of stuff, are they allowed to do that kind of stuff? And are they allowed to talk about it? We don't know. Because some of those societies like China are fairly closed. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, I, I thought that was a good question. And again, we don't uh, <laughs> we don't know what the politics are of, you know, different countries or the social stigma. I think I've heard that Russia might you know, possibly be a little more open to it, but you know, I just don't know if somebody out there has some information on that. Would love to hear from you, and uh, you can just shoot us an email. Questions, and, and I just want to point out, questions is plural with an S. So questions at creekdevil.com. We would love to hear about that. Yeah, I, there used to be some people, of course, back when the original pioneers were active. <clears throat> there was uh, there were a couple of guys in Russia. Um, there was a professor, professor by the name of Porsnev 
and uh and i can't remember the other one but you know there was uh and i can't think why i can't think of the guy's name <clears throat> there was one and i believe he passed away recently uh, uh igor bortsev i believe so you know they have they've had their people who were involved in this but um again you know it depends on you know the politics and, and current things that are going on in these places whether they'd even be allowed to uh, go out and do those kinds of things or if anybody even has the interest in there in doing it we just don't know yeah and you know i, I had read some time back a report that the second most viewed video in the world next to the Zabruder film was, you know, the uh, Pat- Patterson-Gimlin film. And that the Russians had studied that extensively, at least this was, you know, probably back in the 70s, and concluded most likely that this is real. Right, right. Yeah, but the subject has been kind of um, stalled ever since those days, so... It has, and the media has helped that tremendously, you know, the tabloid media. <laughs> oh, sure, oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next question. Um, Will, it was reported recently, I don't necessarily completely buy this, but they claim that only 5% of the ocean has been explored, and just, I think it's actually probably higher in reality, but... But my point is, though, that the United States, everybody talks about how it's being overcrowded, and that's true for most, maybe a lot of the the country, but there are so many areas in the country that probably haven't been explored, and maybe that's where a lot of these creatures are. Well, you know, when people, if anybody says the country is being overpopulated, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, get in your car and drive away from populated areas like the East and the West Coast, and then you'll see just how much open space there is in this country and how big it is. So when people say that, that's they're talking about it from a position of not knowing what they're talking about. You know, get out of the cities. The cities are not everything in the country, folks. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I think Washington State is a prime example of that because you take a look at, you know, you think you go up the I-5 corridor, you got Tacoma, you got Seattle, you've got Bremerton, but you and I have talked about this. Get off of I-5, either to the east or the west a little bit, especially to the east. And what do you have? Yeah, the, a- Absolute wilderness. There's a lot more people in the northwest now than there used to be. But, you know, you get away from those populated areas and it's still, there's still a lot of wilderness. You know, lots of areas for, you know, especially that the Cascade Corridor. You know, you come you know, from all, uh, Canada all the way down to Northern California. There's a lot of open forest country there uh, where, uh, you know, a thriving population of these things certainly can and do exist. So, uh, you know, people have some real misconceptions about, you know, what the country's like. Well, talking about that... Um Real briefly, can you kind of comment on some of your experience? You've talked about where you've explored uh, the west side of Mount, Mount Adams. I don't know. If, have you done the east side as well? And what are some of the uh, experiences you've had with evidence footprints and, uh, you know, the, the tree snaps and all that sort of thing? Well, I've been quite a few places over, like I said, almost 50 years now up and down the west coast. 
Mount Adams is just one place, you know, of many. Uh, the eastern side of the mountain is on uh, the Akamai Indian Reservation land, so you can't really go in there without permission, you know, from the tribal council there. Uh, the western side, I just started working in that area before I moved uh, back up to the Puget Sound area back in the late 90s, so I didn't really get to work that area a whole lot. I worked more west of there, uh, the Mount St. Helens area, but yeah, there was, you know, I don't know in terms of evidence what you want me to, to hit on, but, you know, it's things that I discovered over time, you know, spending a lot of time in those regions. And and a lot of those regions are really difficult to work because there's so much area. Uh, like here in Northern California, for instance, you know, you go up north uh, and people, you know, use Bluff Creek as a uh, kind of a reference point for that whole region. But there's... I think the the statement is something like a hundred thousand uh, acres of of land up there that's just wilderness. And if you go into that area, people always you know contact me and they'll say, "Well, I want to go to Bluff Creek. Where should I go?" <laughs> I'll tell you, I've spent weeks doing nothing but uh, exploring the country just to na- learn how to navigate it. You know, with topographic maps because you you get in there and. And the only thing that really works in that area is OnStar because it's it's a more powerful uh, device for the signal, you know, for satellite communication. If you have cell phones, you're not gonna you're not gonna get anything out of there. You can't call anybody, and you know, GPS isn't gonna work. So you have to have maps, uh, and it's like that for a lot of country. You get away from populated areas where there are cell towers and things like that. Um, you're just gonna be out of luck. You better know what you're doing, but. <clears throat> You know, you can go in places, I've been places up there where you could spend weeks and not ever see another human being. So that's what a lot of these places up and down the coast are like. Yeah, that's a good point, Will, because like even here in Orlando, uh, I talked about this before, but everybody thinks of, you know, the theme parks and, you know, Disney, Universal and so forth. But there are areas you go just a little bit outside that area and it is completely open and i'm talking farms and uh, woods and lots of uh, rural areas not urban at all oh yeah yeah you get away from these big urban centers and i I think a lot of people are um they're kind of in a in a different world in terms of their thinking they haven't been out of the urban areas so that's kind of their whole world view this is this is what society is this is what our world is and it's not uh, just in those locations, you get away from those places, and uh, it's a whole different story. Well, Will, you've also pointed out, um, you know, you've talked to people who said, "Well, I've been all up, all over, you know, say Washington State or whatever, and I've never seen one of these creatures." So you you get out a map and say, "Okay, show me the places where you were," and it was concentrated on roads. You know, it's just areas that they'd driven. And you'd say, "Okay, well, what about these areas here?" off the road and well no i haven't been there okay what about these areas here that are you know in in the wilderness well no i haven't really been there off the road either and i think that mindset is we just it's and there's nothing wrong with that but i think a lot of people just kind of default to that way of thinking that well i've been there and i never saw anything well yeah but were you off the road well exactly and i i have you know i've mentioned this before a number of times (laughs) Back in 1992, when we did our our barbecue and potluck thing south of Mount St. Helens, and I remember there was an instance where you know, we were talking to the locals, and 
one guy says, ah, you know, I don't believe there's anything out there. I've been in this area for, I don't know how many years, 40 some odd years or 50 years. And he says, I've, I've hunted, I've been all over this country. I've seen all of it. So I pulled, um, my, one of the topo topographic maps I had out of this particular area he was talking about. And I said, well, can you show me with your finger on the map where all you've been? So he started drawing his finger on all the roads. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, and there were these big open areas between these road systems. And I'd say, well, what about here? Have you been in this area? No, I haven't been there. What about over here? No. What about this place? No. And pretty soon he says, well, hell, he says, I guess I haven't been in all these places. <laughs> you know, so, you know, sometimes people have a perception about a place because they, maybe they grew up there. They've lived there for decades that they know the entire area. But then when you get down to the nuts and bolts, they really don't know these places and you know just driving along the roads um depending on the time of year your vision is very limited not to mention if you're driving alone you're focused on the road you're not looking you know deeply out into the the timber that you're only going to see maybe 30 or 40 feet tops anyway well that's a great point because i have read before a lot of reports where like these things are spotted from people in cars, but almost all the time it's from the passenger and it's very rare. Like in, in your situation, you, you, you were driving at that time, but that's very rare. Usually, I mean, not usually because sometimes, you know, if they're, if they cross the road, obviously the driver's going to see it, but I'm talking about off the sides of the road. It's almost always like passengers in the car that will report sightings. Right. Well, in my case too, um, I was coming around, I was making sort of a right, the bend, the road bend around this, uh, I think it was a rock formation, how the road was going. And it was coming around the right of this. And where the creature was happened to be straight ahead, the vehicle, where the vehicle was pointed. So I was looking straight ahead, you know, and uh, and that's just that's just where it was. So had it been, you know, farther down the road and off to the side of the car, I probably wouldn't have seen it. That's actually a real good point, Brian, that it's typically the passengers who see it. Will, when you when you're going around to the right and you saw the one right in front of you, um, was it very far down? In other words, was it a steep ravine or was it fairly flat? Uh, well, the road was pretty close to the water level of the river, so there was maybe oh gee, we were maybe ten feet up because the road kind of went up and then you know it wasn't flat; it was sort of went up and then over this little rise after the turn and went down and. Uh, it wasn't very far from the water level. So where we were was elevated, like I said, maybe 10 feet above the water. And the creature was, you know, the, the water was only about 40 feet across the river. It wasn't real wide, but it was fairly deep and rough. And and the creature was right at the edge of the water. So it was just, you know, right straight ahead and, and maybe... And it's funny, the appearance, I think about it, and it didn't look like it was down, I think because of the height of the creature, the size of it. it, it my, my senses told me that it was almost like straight ahead, but it was actually, you know, it was down just a little bit, but not a whole lot. So that's got to be an interesting moment. Totally unexpected. And there we are again, right in front of you. Um, what were you thinking at that time, like? It, was there a moment of, hey, what is this? Oh, no, it was, oh, crap. It was, oh, crap. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it was it was unexpected. I wasn't expecting. We were, we had a few miles to drive yet to get to the snow line. Uh, 
and I wasn't expecting anything until we got up in that area. Uh, and that was, you know, higher elevation, you know, where the snow level still was. And, um, you know, we were down in that lower area. Now, that lower area, too, is where uh, the photographer for the paper, who was a, a local, told me that that was the area where people on the weekends, locals, would go up and, you know, they'd party and, and just, you know, be in the outdoors up there. And that's where a lot of the, when you got off, in, there were only a couple of side roads there at that time. And that's where they would leave trash and things. So um, it just didn't occur to me that there might be one right there, you know, because that's where, um, you know, people would go on the weekends. I was expecting farther up, you know, where the snow line was, where I'd seen tracks. Well, and that's interesting because that has been oftentimes my experience of, you know, we've joked about this, but I, I've gone to places where I knew they weren't. <laughs> but but they were. Yeah, I mean, you can have a preconceived idea about, and that's, you know, part of the learning process that I've experienced over the years is, you know, I'll, I'll go into a place and I'll be thinking one thing about it based on previous knowledge, and then something will occur that changes or adds to that. So, like in this case, it really did. It was like I didn't expect them to be there. You know, I thought they were, they'd been hanging around up around the tree line. And for this one to be this far down uh, was a real surprise. I didn't expect it. Well, and you had a real benefit to that in that you had other people in the car. So you had other witnesses who saw the same thing. And that's always, it's great to have that corroborating information. Yeah, because that you question yourself. I did. And because it happened so fast. You know, the creature was there. You know, it came into view immediately and then took a step or two and was... The brush is really thick there, so and it was springtime, so um, you know the leaves were coming on pretty fast, and and it just disappeared quickly. So in my mind, I'm thinking, did I really see that? So I, I stopped the car. I mean, I came I came to a halt really quick when I saw it, and all this you know was happening. I'm thinking all this, and I said, did did everybody see that? Don't say anything. You know, here's some paper. Draw what you saw. Make a sketch. And, and don't talk about it. We'll talk about it afterwards. So everybody in the car did that, except my girlfriend. She didn't see anything. And because uh, she wasn't looking up, she was looking at a book. And uh, it happened so quickly. So uh, the other people in the car drew exactly what I saw. And even some of the details, you know, that were, were exactly the same. In fact, um, and it was interesting. Usually you don't see ears on the creature. And this one, um, the left ear, because it was the creature was facing, its left side was toward us. And uh, you could actually see the ear in this one. And, uh, you know, that was in a couple of the sketches. Oh, interesting. So, so Will, this is not a facetious question, but did you consider possibly getting out and, and kind of not, not, I'm not saying go up to the, where the creature was, but I mean, get out and like maybe look for tracks? Well, I stopped and did get out. Uh, we all got out and to see if we could oh, see oh, the creature continue moving, and, and it was just gone. But that the river was, it's like I said, it was deep, and, and uh, the current was pretty rough right through there. It was um, it was something you couldn't cross. You weren't going to get across there. Um, when the water level did lower, uh, two or three weeks later, we went back up there and were able to cross at a lower point and then walk back up to that spot. But it was so rocky. I mean, it's, it's all... Um, it's all volcanic rock in that area that the river cuts through. In fact, that's what caused me to have my attention on the water 
before right before this happened i was looking at the water and it was just crystal clear kind of a a real almost a dark green but it was clear color beautiful color you know and and it made me reminisce about uh, the Ohanapkosh River on Mount Rainier when I was a kid. You know, family friend used to take me fishing up there. And and the watercolor was the same there. And it was just, I was just kind of momentarily daydreaming, you know, looking down and then I saw this movement straight ahead. I'm like, Jesus, you know, here's here's one right here, this massive thing. Then it was bigger than the one I'd encountered when I was 16. So that was kind of a shock too. And it was gray colored. Yeah, Brian kind of had the same question I did. Was uh, what was the soil condition of the bank? Uh, it's all there, rock. and it sounds like it wasn't. It was all rock. Yeah, not conducive. No, to, no there was no sand or anything. It was all volcanic rock. The places where there, well, the places where there was any soil that was there was you know brush growing there. I'm not sure what type of bushes are in that area, but they were they're fairly tall and fairly tough to get through. So. A lot of I think a lot of, there was vine maple and things like that in there, so it was really kind of a a place that you really didn't want to try to traverse, you know, because it, it'd take you hours just to go a short distance through that kind of stuff. But there was there was no surface that would have left any footprints there. Well, it kind of speaks to the creatures. I mean, rhetorical statement, but we know they're tough. But you know, here he is in a spot that apparently they really didn't bother him. No. I don't think it was bothering, and I, you know, I wondered what it was doing there. It was probably that time of year. There may have been, I don't know, if steelhead were running yet then or not, but I, they were probably. It was either getting water or fish, one of the two. Now, Will, how how far or close was this to your original sighting, like your your house, basically? Oh, it you... wasn't even in the same part of the state. That was oh, okay. like probably 120, 130 miles south. Well, kind of dovetailing on that question a little bit, have you heard of the area where you saw this last one? Uh, kind of a rhetorical question, but are there reports of activity in that area? I don't think currently because there's a lot more people in that area and they've built north. Um, you can't build east in the in the Columbia River Gorge anymore. They outlawed that because of the, the scenic nature. But uh, So the only place they have left to go is really north, and they've done that quite a bit. Um Back then, you know, I had found there were quite a few sightings, though, of the creatures in that area. Uh, in fact, around that time, well, it was after that time, uh, because, you know, we were, we took uh, my girlfriend's kids up in the snow, and uh, while there still was snow, we went up higher and, you know, let them play in the snow. And, and of course, I had my camera out thinking I was going to find more tracks, because I found tracks at least twice up in that spot, you know, quite a long line of tracks, actually. And uh, I, there was another family up there, which was, you know, kind of rare. You didn't, you didn't really run into other people up there much. But there was this other family, and, and the guy walks over to me, and he says, you're getting any good shots? And I kind of snickered, and I said, well, I hope so. And then he kind of looked at me quizzically, and then I just told him what I was doing. And he said, and I told him what I had seen recently. And he says, wow. He says, you know, I never told anybody about this, but 17 years ago, me and some buddies were elk hunting up here. And we were standing around the fire one night, and that very same when he described it identically to what I saw, came walking up to the edge of the fire and stood there and looked at him for a bit, and then it turned around and walked away. And then his wife had overheard us talking. She says, you never told me that. And he says, I didn't tell anybody that. So it was, a, it was an interesting corroborating piece of information about a particular individual there. 
Yeah, well, it, it is amazing how many people have these sightings and they don't even tell the people that are close to them about what they saw. You know, it depends on what they perceive the subject. I mean, you know, when I was 14, we all we you know, we went out and legitimately we found these footprints and I went back and was telling my family and all I'm doing is saying telling them what we saw, right? And they just raked us over the coals. So lesson learned, it's like, you know, you see something again, you don't tell anybody about it. That's that was what was in my mind. So Will, let me ask you a question about your original encounter. Okay. Would you have done anything different than what you did? I know it was kind of like a spur of the moment. You were completely shocked. But, I mean, would you have, uh, if you had to do it all over again, like, for example, would you have shot in the gun up in the air or would you have just ran? Oh, I would have just done what I did. I mean, that was, it was just instinct based on, you know, my knowledge and experiences at that point in my life. So I would have just, I would have reacted the same way, I'm sure. If I could go back knowing what was going to happen, I would have never gone out there in the first place. Yeah, that, you know, the the part of that story that I find, I mean, the whole thing is really interesting, but the part that's sort of unnerving is the fact that you had the other one behind you and you didn't know it. So this, I'm just going to kind of recreate the scene. You go under some fir boughs. You got an old growth maple, I think it was, about 15 feet in, and this thing's standing either beside or in front of that old growth maple kind of moving the leaves so you're not that far in right how far in from the tree line do you think you were oh maybe 20 25 feet tops yeah that was a a big old maple tree it was probably you know the trunk was probably I, i think easily three feet thick and and the creature was just to my left of if the tree were in front of me it was to the left of where i was facing the tree and uh yeah so i walked by some there was a lot of brush along the tree line and and the other one had to have been right there i had to walk right past it you know at some that some distance. yeah that was the question i had was you walked right past one never knew it it was right there and it was watching you i mean they could have had you if, i guess if they wanted oh, to yeah. and you know that's just that's the thing in that part of the country you know you get farther south you know you have talked about like where you live you, it's still pretty thick where you are you, but you get farther south in Oregon and Northern California, and it opens up a lot. There's still a lot of timber, but there's not as much underbrush. And I think the wetter it is, the more underbrush grows in the Northwest. So that stuff is like a jungle. I mean, it really is. There's pictures of me in places where I've been in the field, and literally you wouldn't see more than a couple feet into that that, uh, growth. You just wouldn't see anything in there. No, you're absolutely right. The visibility is... You know, you got the uh, you know, vine maples and what rhododendrons and just all the other, like you said, the little leafy stuff that's just everywhere. Oh, yeah, especially, you know, in spring and summer and, and even into the fall, that stuff is so thick. Um, I'm looking at a picture now on my wall of, you know, when we lived um, on the Puyallup River, and this, the picture was taken probably in I don't know, 1966 or 67. And, and you can see the brush across this field behind where, you know, members of my family and myself are sitting at this table and it's just like a jungle back there. You wouldn't see anything in that. It's so thick, but that's the way it is. Well, and remember Carlos we had on recently and his, his sighting. And he said the one was just sitting, you know, he's talking about the old growth trees. Yeah. Okay. But they're just covered with, uh, he referred to it as chaparral, but it's just these, 
again, the vine maples and the roadies and just that oh, yeah. thick undergrowth. He never would have seen a thing had that creature not just jerked its head real And then quick. there's all the slough brush and ferns and all the other stuff growing on the ground. Uh, and, and that's, you know, Oregon grape and stuff like that. But, you know, it's that stuff can get up, you know, three feet high. So if something wanted to hide oh, in there, uh, you know, <laughs> all you got to do is just not move. Hunker down a little bit and you'd never be seen in that stuff, ever. <laughs> I was I was elk hunting oh, many, many miles south of where I currently live. And this is years ago. And I was I, I told you the story. I was walking along and you talk about Oregon grape. And it was Oregon grape almost waist deep. And I'm walking along, and then to my right is all these fir boughs that, that you know, I don't know what, what kind of trees they were, probably dug fir or something. But they reached down all the way down to the ground. So if you wanted to go in there, you'd have to, like, go under this little canopy. And I got within about five to eight feet of something and heard a roar, and it charged up the hill. And I really felt pretty inadequate. I had a you know, 30 out six Mauser bolt action. I felt pretty, pretty inadequate with that. <laughs> well, that's just it. If, if you're not familiar with that part of the country, you know, in, in Washington and Oregon, um, <laughs> it's, uh, that stuff is incredible. I mean, and it's not the best, especially if you're going to do what we do with this subject, it's not the best country to go looking for Sasquatches in because, uh, it just doesn't yield a lot of physical evidence because that stuff is so thick. Uh, you got to find just the right places where they, they would leave footprints and things like that. And, and it does happen, but it's not as often as, say, you know, more open areas. Yeah. And again, not only could the creature be just a few feet away and, and you wouldn't see it, but so could the footprints. Oh, they yeah. could be right there. You'd never see it. No. You know, and I, I've, I've tracked these things in places where... Um, you know, I found a lot of footprints and then, but you don't find, you lose the trail because the brush becomes so thick and there's just, you know, the ground is just not open for them to leave footprints in. It's either hard or there's just a lot of stuff growing there. A lot of, a lot of material, you know, dead limbs and things like that on the ground where you're just not going to leave any footprints in it. So you, you can lose the trail pretty quick. Well, we're just about out of time, fellas. Do we have any last questions or thoughts we want to bring up? Well, I just want to thank everybody, and we really appreciate our audience out there. If you have questions, send them to questions, plural, questions at creekdevil.com. And, um, yeah, just uh, another great Q&A session. Brian, yeah. you got anything, Brian? For sure. No, just once again, thanking our audience for all the questions and and the support that we get. So, appreciate it. All right, fellas. Great job, as always, everyone. Uh, again, you know, if you've got questions, I'd really appreciate you sending them to me. I'm trying to gather uh, quite a list for a current project. And when I have that together, I'll let everybody know what the project is. But for right now, I'm kind of keeping it under wraps. But uh, I can use all the questions you can come up with. So thank you in advance. And everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot History, British Columbia, 1884. The Victoria Colonist, July 3, 1884, reports the capture of a gorilla-type creature 4 feet 7 inches tall, weighing 127 pounds, 
covered with glossy hair an inch long. The creature possessed extraordinary strength. Its keeper planned to take it to England to exhibit it, but there is no record of its subsequent fate. Welcome. This is a collection of three stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Many names. Alaska's Bigfoot. 1994. Alaska's Bigfoot. Bigfoot has been reported in several parts of Alaska. The Clinkett Indians of southeastern Alaska call it Kushtaka. The Denina Indians of South Central named it Nintina. The Eskimos of Southwest Alaska call it Ureuli or Hairy Man. John Active, a Yupik storyteller from Bethel, has gathered a large number of accounts told by the Yupik people of southwestern Alaska concerning their encounters with Ureuli. This being was described as standing ten feet tall covered with hair, with glowing eyes. Its arms were so long, they reached to the creature's ankles. It was said to roam the tundra and cry out its loneliness with a voice resembling that of a loon. Although its appearance terrified the persons confronting it, the Uriuli never harmed anyone, according to the accounts gathered by John Active. However, Legendary accounts lore has it that children who disappear while in the woods are transformed into Uriuli. The southeastern Kushtaka has a less benevolent reputation. The natives feared the creature and avoided its habitat. Harry D. Colt described a miner's encounter with the Kushtaka in an account which was later published as The Strangest Story Ever Told. Colt and three other prospectors teamed up in 1900 at Wrangell. They sent Charlie, one of the four, to Thomas Bay to look over a gold prospect, while the others sought grub stakes to pay their expenses. Charlie went about 50 miles up the coast to this location. There, the rains kept him confined to his tent for several days. He then went out, trying to locate the landmarks given to him by an Indian. By chance, he found a gold-flecked quartz ledge and loosened a piece with his gun, breaking his gun stock in the process. As he was taking his bearings, he said, a troop of creatures he called devils that looked like both men and monkeys swarmed after him. These shaggy beasts with long, coarse hair, stinking and covered with sores, pursued him back to his canoe. During the chase, they screamed and scraped his back with long, claw-like fingers. Charlie said he came to in his canoe, which was drifting at sea. He was cold, hungry, and thirsty. He returned to his comrades with nothing but the clothes on his back, his canoe and oars, and the chunk of gold quartz. He declared he had enough of Alaska. In exchange for his passage back to Seattle, he told his tale to the other three. Two more of Colt's partners returned to the site of the gold-speckled quartz ledge. Once again, they returned with strange tales of devils. 
one of the partners was said to have gone mad. Other prospects who have scouted the same area were reported by Colt to have suffered frightening experiences and to have behaved in a strange manner afterwards. Mysterious happenings occurred as late as 1925, when a farmer reported losing a dog in the hills there, but finding strange tracks, with a hind feet resembling a cross between a bear's and a human's footprints. A trapper in the area disappeared. Searchers found his outfit and tracks, but no trace of the man. The Iliamna region not only has a fish monster, but also is a home to Big Man, as the natives call him there. For years, Big Man has been blamed for stealing fish from the villages and for mysterious disappearances of people. More recently, Federal Aviation Administration worker Jim Coffey said an eight-foot humanoid almost ran him off the road in New Halen near Lake Iliamna. That same night, a woman living nearby reported that a Bigfoot left watermelon-sized footprints in her yard and tore down her laundry. Investigators found huge footprints alongside the road. At 24 inches long, they were the largest Bigfoot prints ever found. That's the end of story number one. Story number two. Expedition sets out to find unknown creature. The Ukumar? March 2nd, 2003. Expedition sets out to find unknown creature. Mitan, Argentina. Police, backwoodsmen, and firemen seek out strange animal. Rosario de la Frontera footprints found. And strange howls heard. Reinforced by personnel from Mitan, the research team is trying to lock down a wooded area. A team composed of over 20 policemen from Rosario de la Frontera and Mitan, some 15 mounted backwoodsmen, 12 members of the Ciudad Terminal Volunteer Fire Brigade, and journalists from the local TV station El Tribuno, and regional broadcasters, is covering every square foot of a densely wooded area where eyewitnesses claim having seen less than 72 hours ago, the strange humanoid creature that has startled residents of the province's southern reaches. The Ukumar, as the citizenry has incorrectly christened it, would be a two-meter-tall biped with a hairy body, large claws and ears, and fierce carnivorous habits. The true Ukumar, also known as the spectacled bear, is the only South American plantigrade, but it is herbivorous, easily frightened, and a resident of the tropical rainforests, measuring no more than 1.20 meters. There is no evidence that it exists in the country, although there are specimens in captivity in Bolivia and Ecuador. The operation combing the woods for this strange beast is under the command of Sheriff René Tocacho and José Ezequiel Alvarez, commander of the Volunteer Fire Brigade and of the Juan Carlos Rivas Archaeological and Paleontological Research Group. The expedition aimed at capturing the strange specimen began on Friday at 2100 hours without police support, which was incorporated yesterday in the likelihood that the hominid may in fact be prowling the area. 
The fact is that the participants in the search, unarmed, heard strange howls, and found prints that evidenced the recent transit of a heavy, two-legged animal at around one o'clock in the morning. Miguel Moreno, a cameraman for a Rosario television station, said, At one point we heard the crackling of leaves and saw a silhouette which vanished quickly into the dense vegetation. Local dogs, a pack of over thirty, began barking furiously. One of the hounds, he added, went after the thing, and we heard it growl in the darkness, but then there was silence, and the dog was never seen again. The search area is located in the vicinity of the municipal garbage dump, three kilometers away from the center of the city, where there are trees, overgrown pastures, and all manner of shrubbery. We were unarmed and did not dare go deeper into the area for fear of an eventual misfortune resulting from an attack, said Jose Ezequiel Alvarez, who requested police support in order to continue. His request was granted yesterday when twenty elements from Rosario de la Frontera, reinforced by personnel from Regional Unit 3, headquartered in Mitan, joined the search. Papo, one of the firefighters who participated in the first expedition, said, I'm sure of having seen something resembling a large monkey, although the image was fleeting since it vanished quickly into the dense brush. At the close of this edition, members of the search team were getting ready to quit without having found the key to the door to this mystery, which has kept Rosario residents on tenterhooks after recurring accounts of encounters and sightings of the odd, hairy hominid. Article, courtesy Alejandro J. Cordoba, A.R. Copyright, Diario El Tribuno, Salta, Argentina. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Bigfoot and Betty Allen by Don Davis, copyright 2002. The headlines of the small November 1963 issue of the San Francisco Territorial News screamed, Story behind the Bigfoot mystery, complete in this issue. Well, how could anyone resist buying that? Especially as it seemed you could unlock the mystery with only a ten-cent purchase. Of course, the fact that the November 1963 edition was on the newspaper rack in the spring of 1964 might discourage some from buying it. The paper didn't unlock the Bigfoot mystery for me, but it was perhaps the best dime I ever spent. It pointed me to the Presidio Branch Library in San Francisco where an exhibit of Bluff Creek Plaster Tracks was on display. Uh, I had seen photographs prior to that time, but never casts. It also beckoned me irresistibly to the Fisherman's Wharf office of this newspaper where they had a few copies of Betty Allen's Bigfoot Diary, hot off the press and available for 50 cents each. At that time, I was collecting anything I could find on Bigfoot and related creatures, so this Bigfoot Diary was a priority. Before I go on, please indulge me in a personal flashback. Late 1950s, I was living in New York City. 
An associate of mine told me one morning that he had seen a special on television the night before about a strange yeti-like creature living in California. Since I was the only person he knew that had spent much time in California, he asked me if I had ever heard of it. At that time, I was firmly convinced of the existence of the Yeti in Asia, but had not yet heard mention of the name Sasquatch or Bigfoot. I assured him that any such thing was certainly impossible, but to his credit, I didn't convince him. The special had impressed him enough to leave him with an objective, open mind. I really can't defend the stand I took. In mitigation, perhaps it's to my credit that I did think about what he was saying for a few minutes, and then told him that I believe that the one place in California where such creatures could best exist, if they did exist, would be in the far northwest corner of the state. He said that he thought that was the very area that they were talking about. Around 1960, I moved to San Francisco Bay Area from New York. A year or two later, I came across Sanderson's Abominable Snowman book, which really began my education in cryptozoology. Thus, I was more than ready for and receptive to the November 63 edition of the SF Territorial News. The article in the Territorial News was an account of a visit to Willow Creek for their Bigfoot Days celebration by George Walmsley, publisher of the newspaper. The article included an account of a trip out along the Bluff Creek Road to see Bigfoot tracks. It wasn't long before I was at the newspaper's office on Fisherman's Wharf purchasing a Bigfoot diary and meeting George Walmsley. It turned out that Betty Allen was George Walmsley's aunt and the person that had arranged his Bluff Creek outing. During our conversation that day, I told him I was taking my family on vacation up the California coast and inquired about the possibility of viewing tracks. He encouraged me to contact his aunt and gave me her address in Willow Creek. Up to that time, I had hardly heard of Betty Allen. She is mentioned a couple of times in Sanderson's book, but so casually her name did not stick in my memory. I certainly wasn't aware of the extent of her investigations and her other efforts that were bringing such widespread attention to Bluff Creek. She was about as unknown to me then as she seems to be to many of the Bigfoot investigators and authors of today. I wrote to Betty. There was no reply for a while. Then, just a day or so before heading out, a letter arrived. It was dated July 17, 1964, and said, in part, I would be glad to meet with you, and though the news out of the area of Bluff Creek is very sketchy this year, I know earlier the tracks were seen. It would be a very interesting trip for you to take at any rate, and there is a fine camping spot at the Notice Creek Bridge. Workmen are going and coming, but with ordinary caution it is safe enough to drive. Loggers are very polite and careful in this area. I wish I had more recent news and more definite appearances this year, but uh, often I do not hear when they come in, and the men are so busy they pay no attention. Now, Betty told me that at first she tried to discourage people from going to Bluff Creek or anywhere else to search for signs of Bigfoot. She was afraid they would find nothing and spread the word that it was all a hoax. 
Some insisted on poking around anyway, and in time she came to realize that those that went into the field to search often found nothing. She began encouraging those that wanted to investigate. She told me of three general areas that were good places to look for tracks. One was on Notice Creek. I forget if she mentioned the location of a second one, but the one she recommended to me was an area on Bluff Creek near Laos Camp. She didn't tell me where to look, but she did mention things to look for besides tracks. She also told me exactly, to the tenth of a mile, the best place to get down from the road into the steep-sided creek. Among the most interesting parts of my visit was hearing her relate much of the historical Bigfoot investigations and experiences. She talked a bit about searches for Bigfoot evidence, not only in the area of Bluff Creek, but, as she put it, coming in from the other side. Incidentally, it appears the term Bigfoot had been used in the Klamath area by non-Indias for some time before the creature ever made the Eureka newspapers. At the time of my first visit to Willow Creek, and for some time previously, Betty was a string reporter for the Eureka newspaper, gathering news and material from the areas near where she lived. The Yurok and Hoopa Indians had known for a very long time about the strange, hairy man-like giants that they called Uma, my own spelling from verbal coaching of a Yurok friend. Incidentally, it is a Yurok Indian that probably should get credit for the quoted reaction when first informed about the white man's interest in Bigfoot by replying that it was interesting that the white man had finally gotten around to discovering this. There are many accounts from loggers, female cooks at the logging camps, hunters, fishermen, ranchers, and other non-Indians in the area reporting sightings and tracks from long ago. I have seen and heard some of these accounts that go back at least as far as the early 1940s, and I have heard rumors of much earlier incidents. Betty told me about one very old Indian woman she took up to Bluff Creek to see the tracks. This woman carried the very old tattoos on her face that I understand were applied to young children of her tribe in the 1800s. The woman couldn't walk very far, and then only with help. When she saw the tracks, she excitedly exclaimed, "'All my life I've heard about these things, and now at last I finally get to see their tracks!' In the 1950s, logging operations in Northern California were going full blast. The one best known to Bigfoot buffs is one that was located in the great V of the Klamath River, where a new road was built paralleling little-known Bluff Creek and stretching back more than 20 miles from the Klamath River. For much of the time that logging operations and road building were taking place near Bluff Creek and alongside the Lonesome Ridge, the workers camped out or lived in portable accommodations in the woods. They generally only went home on weekends, leaving their woodsy campsites deserted. It didn't take long before strange, large footprints started appearing, especially where new road gratings had taken place. Soon other incidents began to occur, which have been previously mentioned in various Bigfoot records. Betty told me that the contractor 
was loath to have any word of these strange happenings reported to the outside world, partly for this reason, and partly not to be accused of being crazy, the workers were reluctant to speak of the strange events that were taking place. Some of the occurrences the workers found very alarming. At home on the weekends, some of the workers would confide their uneasiness to their wives, and in time, some of these wives began to talk to Betty. It is likely that Betty had heard about this Bigfoot creature prior to the time when these wives began to fear for their husband's safety. I do know that at some point Betty began her own investigation of whatever evidence she could uncover that might prove or disprove the existence of Bigfoot. Her efforts eventually convinced her that Bigfoot roamed her area, and his visits were not isolated or just occasional. The reports from workers' wives, coupled with information she obtained by other means, enabled Betty to gather a considerable amount of data. One time she was having dinner in one of the Willow Creek restaurants when she overheard a man at the table behind her talking about huge footprints. He had found these tracks around his snowbound construction equipment out in the woods. He was telling how he had followed the tracks for several miles in the snow, in the dead of winter, before turning back because of a new storm threat. She told me that when she overheard this conversation, she turned around and politely asked a question or two. This led to an evening's dinner, for she spent about as much time conversing with the table behind her as with those at her own table. She said that on the restaurant wall near the table was a map of the Klamath area. And this map was used during this conversation to indicate various locations. Some years later, while having dinner in one of the Willow Creek restaurants, I noticed a map on the wall above my table. In looking closely at it, I noticed a circle and several other pencil marks drawn in the upper Bluff Creek area. And I wondered if these marks were added to that map one evening by a contractor, and or Betty Allen. I'm not sure that same restaurant is still there, but I do know the map has disappeared. With some of the information she gathered, Betty began a scrapbook. As the reports from loggers' wives and others accumulated, she began to try to interest her editor, Andrew Genzoli, in her material. She wanted to do an article for the Eureka paper, for some time, Mr. Gonzalez expressed no interest in such an article. Finally, after repeated efforts on Betty's part, he stopped putting her off. Betty sent a small sample portion of her material. Then she waited for his response. Some days later, Betty opened the Eureka paper to see an article Mr. Gonzalez had written using some of the material Betty had supplied. His article featured an illustrated cartoon caricature probably so that no one would accuse the newspaper of seriously believing the Bigfoot material. Betty was disappointed. When she talked with her editor by phone, she learned that he fully expected hoots and ridicule to result from the article's appearance, but decided to publish it anyway. When letters from readers slowly began to arrive, Mr. Ginzali was surprised that instead of ridicule, the writers told personal stories of Bigfoot experiences. 
Betty was surprised at the extent of the readership reaction. Later, Mr. Gonzale got in touch with Jerry Crew regarding the cast that he had made and wrote a second article. It just might have been Betty Allen that brought Mr. Gonzale and Jerry Crew together, as she was there helping Jerry Crew when he made his first cast. She said she came back the next day to the casting site with her own material and made a cast from the same series of tracks Jerry used. The article featuring Jerry Crew and his cast was the one picked up by the Associated Press Wire Service that resulted in changing the scope of Bigfoot investigations forever. Betty had not gotten to write her article, but her efforts to collect, examine, and her attempts to publish had launched the modern Bigfoot era. In Canada, John Green and Rene DeHinden read about the Bigfoot in Northern California, and first John, and later Rene, came to investigate. Tom Slick saw the reports and shifted his attention from the Yeti of Tibet to the Bigfoot of California. Now, Betty didn't seem to have great admiration for Tom Slick's Pacific Northwest expedition. She didn't approve of hunting Bigfoot with guns, especially since so little was known about it. She was relieved when the expedition members left without a Bigfoot specimen. It also may be that she declined to share her information with the Slick expedition. If this is so, it may explain why members of that group have pretty much ignored her contributions to the study of Bigfoot in their writings. In 1958, Ivan Sanderson became aware of reported Bigfoot activity in Northern California. In his book, Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life, Sanderson, on page 129, makes the following statement referring to when he heard about California Bigfoot for the first time. The point I want to make is that this whole bit did sound quite absurd even to us, who became immune to such shocks years ago. It is all very well for abominable creatures to be pounding over snow-covered passes in Nepal and Tibet, but a wild man with a 17-inch foot and a 50-inch stride tromping around California was then a little too much to ask, even for us, to stomach. In the foreword to his Abominable Snowman book, Mr. Sanderson also states, Three years ago, his book was published in 1961, I dismissed all such evidence as either hoax or legend. Of course, that was before his trip to Willow Creek in 1959 and his meetings with Betty Allen. She said Sanderson stayed in a motel in Willow Creek for a week or two while she ran around lining up witness after witness for him to interview. She opened her files to him. She offered to accompany him to Bluff Creek, but he wasn't interested in viewing anything for himself, neither locations nor tracks. By the time Sanderson left, Betty had furnished him with enough material for a book on the Bigfoot of Northern California, which she expected him to write. Instead, he used only part, a small part, of her material for a chapter or so in his abominable snowman book. She was disappointed once again. It should be realized that the Bigfoot incidents in Bluff Creek in the 1950s and 60s were by no means unique. Similar happenings had been known in many places in and outside the United States. 
Sometimes the occurrences were, and still are, as frequent, if not more so, than Bluff Creek. But, thanks to Betty Allen's efforts, it was Bluff Creek that got the big play in the newspapers, thus attracting the attention of many investigators and researchers, and eventually Patterson and Gimlin. Betty lived very modestly when I knew her. She did not even have a car. She enjoyed going out into the field to investigate, but to do this she had to get someone to take her, as the trip from her home to the prime evidence areas was more than fifty miles over not the best of roads. Al Hogson, who was later to be involved with the Patterson-Gimlin filming, and who now is doing such a nice job of developing the Bigfoot wing of the museum in Willow Creek, was one of those that accompanied her on trips up Bluff Creek. Today, Willow Creek seems to me to be about the same size as it was in the early 1960s. It is the southern gateway to Bluff Creek area, and is the place where the Bigfoot Scenic Highway, State Highway 96, starts and proceeds north towards the creek Betty so loved to visit. The Willow Creek Museum is well worth a visit, as it houses Bob Tibbs's Bigfoot cast collection and other interesting material. It is a shame that Betty's material is not there as well. Willow Creek was Betty's hometown until the mid-1960s when she moved to Alaska. She wrote me sometime after the big Alaska earthquake, telling me of information she had received from Ivan Sanderson regarding Bigfoot happenings on the Pacific coast near where Alaska and Canada meet. I think the idea of searching out Bigfoot in Alaska appealed to her. I was at the dedication of the Bigfoot wing of the Willow Creek Museum in 1999. I had been to the museum once before and have visited it several times since. The staff of volunteers is very helpful and polite, but with the exception of Al Hogson, none that I talked with seemed to have any idea who Betty Allen was. I think it would be nice if her name was on the outside of the museum in big letters, maybe something like, the Betty Allen Bigfoot Museum and Research Center. What do you think? There is a copy of Betty Allen's small booklet, Bigfoot Diary, locked up in one of the museum's display cases. Outside of that, she seems pretty much forgotten in her hometown and most everywhere else. Don Davis was involved casually as a witness, investigator, and researcher in the field of cryptozoology since before Bernard Huvelmans coined the term. The article appearing here is the first draft for a chapter of a book he was preparing about some of his more interesting Bigfoot experiences. Sadly, Don died in February 2002, and this article was his last work to see print. Copyright, published in Craig Heinzelman's Crypto. Hominology Special Number 2, 2002. This ends the third reading. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This collection of five stories is being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Sasquatch are here, says Outdoorsman by Bernice Tick, Prince George Citizen Staff, August 15, 2005. 
A Prince George man, whose greatest passion has been hunting for big game, admits he's hooked on proving the existence of Sasquatch. Leo Selzer, who has spent 41 years hunting in the bush around Prince George in Canada, is convinced the elusive creatures are around, and he spends as much time as he can in the bush area where he believes they live. He says he's had one pretty clear sighting, and several occasions when he's convinced he was communicating with his furry friends. In the mid-1980s, when Selzer was moose hunting in Greg Creek area west of the city, he did his loud moose calls that bring in the bulls during rutting season. After a few calls, I heard a response, like someone banging on a tree about a kilometer away. I would call, then right away, bang, bang. And a small black bear appeared, wandering towards the banging sounds. The bear stopped and stood up on its hind legs, looking towards a tall fir tree. And then, all of a sudden, it hightailed it in the opposite direction toward me, veered off, and went down over the ridge. It was then that Selser saw a tall, dark-colored creature step out from the cover of the fir tree into the open, and then quickly stepped behind the tree and was gone said Selser, noting that logged-off areas have little human activity. In 2000, Selser was again hunting at Greg Creek when, about 400 meters, he spotted what he first thought was a large bear standing on its hind legs watching the hunters. It was standing next to a large, broken-off fir tree and was about the same dark color, maybe grayish around its shoulders and on its chest. Thinking it could be a grizzly... I kept a close eye on it, watching it shift its weight from one leg to the other a couple of times for about a half an hour. All of a sudden, it was gone. But later, I realized a bear would never stand on its hind legs for that long without getting down and back up again, said Selzer. After studying that area closely, he's concluded the creatures leave landmarks and directional signs by piling trees into X marks behind closely knit trees, and bending and shaping spindly trees into arches and shaped pointers carefully threaded through willow tops. He believes Sasquatch eat bark from the trees like aspens, and has seen markings showing large fingernails and teeth were used to remove the bark. He has also seen large footprints but hasn't been fortunate to be able to photograph them fresh or complete. One footprint going up a grade was pretty clear, about 13 to 14 inches long, 8 inches wide at the heel, and about 6 inches wide at the top of the ball of the foot. There were indications of possible toe impressions about 1 to 3 inches beyond the ball of the foot. In 1994, on the Hoodoo Lakes Road, he could hear three individual voices give out a holler or two, which was responded to by jabbering type of language. I thought it must be some drunken people back there on a bush road or something, but I later found out there is no road or clearing in that area. In mid-June, Selzer came across an area in the Greg Creek, about 300 to 400 yards long, containing a series of blinds and shelters and teepee-like frameworks he believes were built by a Sasquatch. 
The blinds were waist to shoulder height with logs and trees pushed together to form a lean-to-like structure. The frameworks, up to 50 feet high, are made with long spindly trees intricately intertwined to form a structure, said Silzer. Brian Vike in Houston, who reports on unidentified flying objects and such matters, has received reports from residents about Sasquatch sightings in the Buck Flats area. Two Houston women driving up Buck Flats Road were startled recently when a large animal walked upright across the road in front of their vehicle. The animal, described much like a Sasquatch, made long strides into the forest, but did not turn around to look back at the women. He said a camping party in Silverhorn Lake reported hearing chilling screams in the night coming from around the lake, which cannot be associated with the known animals in the region. One other sighting was reported on the Maurice River Road when two people fishing witnessed a large two-legged animal on the opposite bank of a river walk slowly into the forest and disappear, said Vike. American William Dranginus said he saw a Bigfoot once, hairy, seven feet tall, and sprinting through the woods of Virginia. The twelve-second sighting changed the life of Dranginus, who outfitted a 24-foot mobile veterinary clinic as a Bigfoot primate research lab. Equipped with scopes, radios, and a night sight camera that can detect an animal in the dark at 800 yards away, he heads out at least two weekends a month. But still, no second sighting for Dranginus, who would like to push legislation to protect the creatures. Do not shoot it, said Selzer. They mean no harm, but they are curious and incredibly intelligent beings. Selzer's latest reported sighting on July 20th came from a visiting couple from Saskatoon. They told Selzer that, while driving Highway 16 east at about 8 p.m. near Tabor Mountain, they saw what they first thought was a large man crossing the highway. Describing the creature was about seven and a half feet tall, covered with hair, thick-barreled shoulders, and narrow waist, they said it crossed the road about 100 yards ahead of them in about three steps. And that's the end of story number one. Story number two. Old Bigfoot in Idaho adds color to legend. By Betty Allen for the Humboldt Times, 1959. Another article by Betty Allen. This one is an interesting story in several ways and has naturally been received with whoops of joy by the skeptics. The story of Bigfoot and John Wheeler is from the Humboldt Times, dated January 3, 1959, and reads, Mrs. Alvin Bortles of Boise, Idaho, discussed an account of a Bigfoot who lived prior to 1868 in the wilderness of Idaho. The mother of Kenneth Bortles, vice-principal of the Hoopa Valley High School, Mrs. Bortles said that mysterious tracks of a tremendous size and human shape stirred the residents of Idaho in the early days. Just as with Bigfoot tracks of Northern California's Bluff Creek area, some believed they were genuine, others saw them as a clever hoax. Bigfoot lived in the remote wilderness of Reynolds Canyon, now known as Reynolds Creek, 
a thousand dollars was offered for him, dead or alive. Here the likeness to the local Bigfoot ended, for the giant monster, as he was called in Idaho, was a killer. The full extent of the depredations of Bigfoot were never known, nor the many robberies and murders attributed to him, which he probably did not commit. The sometimes wanton killings that were the work of almost superhuman strength, both with stock and humans, brought about his downfall. A thousand dollars was offered for Bigfoot, dead or alive. John Wheeler, a former army man, set out to collect the reward. In the year 1868, he came upon Bigfoot and shot him sixteen times. Both legs and one arm were broken before he fell to the ground, and as he lay there, Bigfoot asked for a drink of water, and because of his great fear, Wheeler shot him, breaking his other arm before giving the drink to the creature. Before he died, he told Wheeler that his real name was Star Wilkerson, and he had been born in the Cherokee nation of a white father. His mother was part Cherokee and part Negro. Even as a very small boy, everyone had called him Bigfoot and made fun of him. At age 19, the white girl he loved jilted him for another. Gathering a small band of men about him, he killed him at the time for the sheer love of the killing. Later, Wilkerson killed the girl that he loved, too. The foot length of this great giant of a man was seventeen and a half inches and eighteen inches around the ball of the foot. His height was six feet nine inches, with a chest measurement of fifty-nine inches, and his weight was estimated at three hundred pounds. He was all bone and sinew, no surplus flesh. He was known to have traveled as far as sixty or seventy-five miles in a twenty-four-hour period. The story of Bigfoot and John Wheeler is detailed further in Ron Marlowe's Indian Tales of Bigfoot, which was first printed in the Independent Enterprise newspaper, Payette, Idaho, Wednesday, March 21st, 2001, http colon forward slash forward slash payettecounty.info forward slash Marlowe forward slash Bigfoot dot html. Adelaide Hawes gives an account of Star Wilkerson, or Bigfoot, in her book, The Valley of the Tall Grass, written in 1950. Another brutal story from Idaho was the one told by President Teddy Roosevelt, The Bauman Story. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Screams and Footprints Found in Talladega National Forest, Cleburne County, Alabama. 1994 About 14 years ago, my wife and I were at a lake in the middle of the Talladega National Forest in Alabama. The lake was Sweetwater Lake. From I-20, you get off at the Heflin exit and go through Heflin and get on Highway 78. You will see signs directing you to Pine Glen, a camping area. The Coleman Lake soon after this point. The roads are dirt roads, 
but follow the signs to Pine Glen, and about three miles up the road on the left you will see a sign for Sweetwater Lake. This road will go down about half a mile to the lake. It was September in 1994. We were fishing in a small boat at the end of a slough early in the morning. We were the only ones on the lake. I think it was a Wednesday, and, well, we were all alone. We heard something scream. It started out as a howl and turned into a long, high-pitched scream, and it was so loud it echoed through the mountains. It made the hair on the back of our necks stand up. But that is not all. About a year before that, my stepfather and I were hiking around the same lake. We liked to fish at a spillway on the back side of the lake, and about a half a mile into the hike we crossed a fire break about twenty feet wide. Now, keep in mind that we are a pretty good way back in the woods. We have crossed rocks, thorns, briars, and all kinds of rough road. And right there across the dried mud in the fire break is a set of footprints dried into the mud. They were not huge. They were about the size of a full-grown man, but they did look human. And I just couldn't understand why a man would be this far back in the woods without shoes on. And over the years, there is one thing I have thought about. A Bigfoot would have to grow up, so maybe it was a young Bigfoot. I once worked with a man in Alabama that afterwards when we became friends and he told me and his whole family were picking huckleberries at Sweetwater Lake. The huckleberries grow wild all over the area. He and his wife and two children were picking away when they all heard something in the trees. They all turned around to see a hairy man standing there. He said it was a little taller than a man, and as soon as it saw them, it ran off into the woods. Well, it scared them so bad that they left. This is the end of story number three. Story number four. The White Mountain Apache Nation of Eastern Arizona. Apaches go public with Bigfoot sightings. It cannot be ignored any longer. By Scott Davis. Tucson, Arizona, September 2nd, 2006. Footprints in the mud. Tufts of hair on a fence. Ear-piercing screeches in the night. These are only fragments of the stories now coming from the White Mountains in eastern Arizona. For years, the White Mountain Apache Nation has kept the secret within tribal boundaries. We're not prone to easily talk to outsiders, said spokeswoman Colette Altaha. But there have been more sightings than ever before. It cannot be ignored any longer. It is a creature the world knows as Bigfoot. No one's had a negative encounter with it, said Marjorie Grimes, who lives in Whitewater, the primary town on the reservation. Grimes is one of many who claim to have seen the creature over the last 25 years. Her first sighting was in 1982. Her most recent was in the summer of 2004, driving home from the town of Sibiku. She becomes more animated as the memory comes forth. It was all black, and it was tall. The way it walked, it was taking big strides. 
I put on the brakes and raced back and looked between the two trees where it was, and it was gone. Grimes' son, Francis, has a story. Their neighbor, Cecil Hendricks, has a story. Even police officers have had strange encounters. Officer Catherine Montoya has seen it twice. On a recent Monday night, dozens of people called into the tribe's radio station, KNNB, to talk about what they'd seen. Others came in person. The newsroom was there. So was Tom Biscardi and a crew from Searching for Bigfoot, Inc., the California-based team, has crisscrossed the country pursuing reports of the mythic animal. New York, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Texas, and Arizona have been hot spots this year. Biscardi said the Apache land is an untapped resource for investigators. There are way too many reports coming out of there of seeing the creature. My God, people better start listening to and coming to this thing because it's happening. His ultimate goal is to capture a Bigfoot creature, study it for 90 days, and return it to the wild. Two nights in a row, Biscardi and crew strapped motion-activated cameras with night-vision lenses onto trees in the nearby woods. They set up listening devices and made noises which he claims lure the creatures into view. All their efforts yielded only one result. No mystery beast no mystery screams. Instead, there is relief. Colette Altaha said the people on the reservation are beginning to support the decision to go public because of people doubting them before they never came forward. But now, with the help of Tom Biscardi and his team, they've come out here and our people are beginning to open up. Indeed, the decision to let 3TV report this story was a controversial one. On the radio program, one Apache caller said tribal elders were uncomfortable letting the legend be known. Still, Altaha believes it is the right thing to do. I've heard stories from a while back about sightings. I'm not easily persuaded, but with so many of the people coming forward and telling us their stories, there might be something out there that actually exists. Tribal Police Lieutenant Ray Burnett puts it in terms of public safety. A couple of times they've seen this creature looking through the windows. They're scared when they call. As in all alleged sightings of a Bigfoot creature, tangible evidence is scarce. The Patterson film from 1967 is the most often seen video. It shows a tall, hairy figure striding through the woods of the Pacific Northwest. For nearly 40 years, this film's authenticity has been debated. It has never been discredited. In the White Mountains last year, investigators found footprints, several tufts of hair and other material at the scene of a sighting. Tribal police made plaster casts from the prints and sent hair and plant samples to the Department of Public Safety for analysis in its state-of-the-art crime lab. Test results showed the hair was not human, but animal in origin. Further testing to determine what kind of animal was not done. The Arizona Game and Fish Department does not investigate Bigfoot sightings. Neither does the state veterinarian's office.
a division of Arizona Department of Health Services. Perhaps the only organizations that take such reports seriously are Bigfoot hunters such as Viscardi or the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. The field is not well organized and often manned by amateurs with little to no scientific background. Biscardi himself has come under fire in the past for promoting an alleged find that later turned out to be a hoax. He is more careful these days and promises a huge revelation yet to come. It will be something even more fantastic than the hundreds of reports of the Apache Bigfoot. Back on the reservation, Lieutenant Burnett wants outsiders to realize that the department takes these calls seriously, and so should you. The calls we're getting from people, they weren't hallucinating. They weren't drunks. They weren't people that we know can make hoax calls. They're from real citizens of the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Nearest to Prescott, Yavapai County, Arizona, November 2007. Scream terrifies ranchers. Hello, I'm writing to your website because of some strange goings-on about the place I own out here in Prescott, Yavapai County, Arizona. We have the remnants of what used to be a working ranch from years ago. Some livestock left from those days. A few horses, a few Brahma, a couple of goats out there, and a longhorn I won in a bar fight in Mexico. Down in Limestone County, Texas, and well, recently we think we have a Bigfoot around. We used to winter horses for people around these parts, who were snowbirds, but no more because of the mystery disappearances that happen here. In fact, lots of mysterious things like that happen around the place, especially as fall nears and the weather cools, like September, October, November. Nothing happens in summer out here. One notable incident was the disappearance of one of my best dogs, part pit bull, shepherd mix. He weren't afeard of anything and was a great watchdog for the lower pasture. He guarded the grazing stock and two sheep we used to have, and the goats from local mountain lions and bobcats. Now you may say the dog wandered off, but he was ten years old and never left sight of the main house. He was a devoted dog. Some have said a bear came in from the forest at night and took him, but my middle son found him exactly fourteen feet up in the crotch of a pinion tree, with his neck snapped. No teeth marks found, no bear claw marks, no mountain lion tears. Just a broken neck and tossed up into that tree, or if not tossed, someone must have put the dog's body up in that pinion which my son had trouble reaching. We all tried to explain that one. Now on to the sheep. I bartered with a half-breed for a ram and you, and had them down in the grazing pasture along with the stock, horses, goats, and such. We only had them a short while, and they disappeared. For a while we thought the previous owner snuck back here, loaded up the two, and carried them off, but 
My wife ran into the fellow in the hardware store in town and talked to him about the disappearance. He came home that day with my wife, and together we went out looking for sign. We found nothing that day, and I don't believe he had anything to do with the sheep disappearance. He told me a far-out story that got me to thinking, though, which is why I looked up Bigfoot on the Internet. Anyway, he told me of a place up in Sierra Prieta, Ponderosa Forest, where this uh, Yavapai Indian woman ran her small flock of sheep in the company of young cousin, a blue merle coolie and a border collie, I think, that kept her flock together at night, fending off attacks by mountain lions and bobcats, sometimes wolverines. Well, this one season the woman and her cousin were bringing the flock down off a mountain grazing. It was late October, and snows were expected. She said she was not feeling well, and laid down in a grassy meadow to rest, but woke up when she heard the sheep bleating, her cousin yelling, and the dogs loudly were onto something. Well, the woman sheep herder said that she got to her feet in time to see her two dogs biting at the heels of a big, hairy man, so Yoko, as he ambled off, escaping with a big U under his arm. The hairy man tried to fend off the biting dogs, kicked the one coolie dog all to hell. Well, this might be what befell my dog. She called off the dogs and watched the hairy man disappear into the pine trees with its prize. He explained the hairy man to her was what we called Bigfoot or Sasquatch. She only told the story once to an elder, and she won't speak of it any more. But he mentioned they came down from the north in winter. Hearing the sheep herder story, putting two and two together, well, my sons, the half-breed and I, pretty much decided that we must have a rogue Bigfoot living somewhere near the property. I don't mind that so much, and we don't mind sharing some of the fruit off our trees with them, but stealing a man's stock is another thing. I don't expect to put up with that. After reading up on your website, my boys and I, along with the other dogs, packed a rifle in the scabbard and rode out recently of a morning during Thanksgiving week and covered the whole western stretch of the property line, looking for sign. You would laugh. We looked like a posse with a B-Western movie. Well, we worked the edge of the tree line for about two hours, looking for a trail. We found one that led deep into the forest, a section none of us had ridden before. We worked the horses through there into and around thick brush. Soon we came to a stream and stopped to gather our bearings and water the horses. Dismounting, I thought I heard someone cough. I asked, and nobody heard it but me. My horse jerked up, snorted, and became uneasy, sensing something none of us could see. The other mounts followed. All of us were focusing on keeping the horses under control as they danced about, bucking, kicking, and snorting. My sons thought mountain lion. I wasn't sure. We stood together there by the stream, listening, calming the horses, when the dogs started looking towards this thicket of tangled brush. Then the barking started in earnest, and they took off.
Still, we couldn't see anything, but by now we all expected the dogs to tree a mountain lion. We couldn't follow. The brush was too thick, but the dog noise seemed to end about twenty yards into the thick brush and brambles. We kept calling and calling, and finally the dogs returned, and then took off again. Pretty soon the dogs returned, with tongues hanging out, breathing heavy. We leashed the dogs up and took them and led the horses back down to the stream. The dogs settled down some, but the horses didn't, and as we were making an effort to saddle up again, that is when it happened. There came this howl that lengthened into a scream that at first sounded like a Brahma fart, low guttural and drug out, ending up into a high-pitched drone like a woman screaming bloody murder. My body reacted with a chill and goosebumps, mainly because the scream was coming from very close, somewhere in that thicket of brambles where the dogs had been. The scream was long and kind of dragged out, the kind of noise that gets your attention real fast. The half-breed yelled, So Coco! So Yoko! Bigfoot, as he pulled the rifle out of the scabbard, by now, the horses were almost impossible to control. Then it got quiet. Not a sound. No birds, no crickets, no nothing. Everything was very still except for the horses. The dogs were by now cowering between my legs, and their ears pricked towards the thicket. Then in the distance we heard another scream. It must have come from across the next valley. Now we're figuring there's a fixing to be two of these Bigfoot. I felt fear for the first time. The dogs started whining. My grown boys hurried and saddled up. We followed and took off down the trail, headed at a full gallop all the way home a good hour later. Ain't never heard nothing like that vocalization before, and I've heard plenty coyote, plenty wolves, elk's bugle, but never nothing like that before, and uh, it weren't no mountain lion scream. It was four times as powerful. If that was a warning from Bigfoot, <laughs> we got the message. This is the end of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>